0: It would be years before I understood that the Procter & Gamble logo scandal was a real thing, and not just an excuse my mother made up to avoid driving over the US border to Detroit to buy me my stupid toothpaste. But I experienced firsthand the fervor surrounding heavy metal as the 80s wore on and the fear that covert satanic machinations were at work everywhere around us, in our cartoons, commercials, music, movies, and most tragically of all, our daycares. It was a time of Ricky Casso, Richard, the Night Stalker Ramirez. And later, Saturday Night Live's The Church Lady. The media exploded with headlines and news specials about the supposed satanic threat, and ambitious journalists tripped over themselves to attach a satanic mandate to every societal transgression. My mother took these admonitions to heart, but she was also an ABC movie of the week addict, and lurid accounts like The Satan Seller and Michelle Remembers sat on her shelf alongside books like A Stranger Is Watching and Flowers in the Attic. She loved the stuff. She had her own baggage, eating up any sordid story about fantastical forms of victimization. And that place where pulp horror met religion was the most salacious of all. my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivagant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Jay, and I am joined today by the panicky duo, Nick and Rory, and our special guest, Chris Jimenez.
1: I gotta get out of here. Yeah, panicky is about where I live my life.
0: On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. we're back hello
2: we are here in the basement pretty cold it is very cold yes that's why i
1: bought this little space heater
0: if you are feeling cold how do you think i'm feeling
2: cold yeah cold like is there is there a word past that
0: extra cold
3: chilled
4: (laughs) icy
0: i'm not icy i'm spicy (laughs) immobile i'm not immobile I'm moving right now. Did you not see me moving my arms through that whole introduction like I'm a no, fucking No, I can't see anything. There's, or... a, there's a
2: whole monitor wall and a computer in front of me. I can see- I There's
1: can... literally no way that you could see through the mountain of things that no, I have no,
2: in front I, of me. I spend most episodes Every... completely blind to you two. I don't know what you're doing.
0: Uh, it's j- okay. <laughs> anyway,
2: hi. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. So glad you could join us. Hello, thanks for having
3: me. It's
0: been a blast already. Oh my god, he's still on the line? <laughs> yeah, he, did,
1: he, he didn't drop off. I know, I'm still waiting well, for that to happen to us. For our listeners at home, you are co-
2: coming in at the end of 25 minutes of shenanigans of us trying to get this going. I was
0: yeah. doing my goddamn best, but apparently, my version of the intro just decided, what if I cut myself in half to embarrass Jay, specifically, <laughs> and I oh my god, I should be banished to the Phantom Zone. i <laughs> Goddamn disaster.
2: But now we are here. and We have a pretty cool book to talk about. We
0: have an amazing book to talk about. I I am ashamed to admit that there were several points while reading this book where I just set it down because I was laughing. Um. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I get that.
2: I, I totally get that.
0: Uh, For our listeners at
2: home, we are we are reading Satanic Panic, Pop Cultural Paranoia in the 1980s. Uh, This was edited by Kierla Janesee and Paul Karup. And those are French names or French Canadian names. And I did not pronounce them right. I I have no idea how they're supposed to be pronounced. So just run with it.
0: I ain't pronouncing a single name in this book correctly. I refuse to try.
2: (laughs) Have we ever? Also, I got to say. This is probably no, no, no. Hands down, the prettiest book we've oh, ever yeah. covered on the show. Yeah, like I am gorgeous. Go- I have taken care to not dog ear anything or bend any pages my cat bent several pages and i'm mad about that but
0: why was watson on the satanic panic book
2: because anytime i'm reading he decides that is the moment when i'm not allowed to do anything but give him attention so he Uh. crawls onto the book when (laughs) as soon as i turn my back and i'll turn back around he's just laying on it staring at me that's funny our
0: beagle used to do that when my dad was reading to me and my sister in bed she would uh get onto the bed and lay on top of the open book
2: she was trying to participate.
0: She was: Preston <laughs> <in> peace speeches.
2: <laughs> I, so what'd you guys think of the book?: Overall general.
0: i I loved it. I loved it. There are several articles in here which actually legitimately reoriented my understanding of multiple true crime cases.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, we are we and it's kind of cool that we're finally getting into the uh, conspiracy side of the paranormal and conspiracy literature. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's
1: true. It, you know, we've been saying that for twenty whatever episodes, and uh, we <laughs> haven't actually done. I mean, we've done a little bit, like because aliens is technically a conspiracy. Yeah, that's right? kind of like a hybrid. That but, we've done some alien conspiracy stuff, but I mean, this is like straight up conspiracy and, stuff. And
2: it, well, it's, it's like it is a conspiracy about creating a fake conspiracy. Yeah. Like yeah. It, <laughs>
1: conspiracyception.
2: Um for those at home who are unfamiliar <laughs> with this book, uh this book as I as you might have noticed, I said it was edited by a couple of people. It wasn't uh-huh. written by them because this is a series of essays uh which are analyzing the satanic panic of the 1980s from various angles of pop culture, seeing mm-hmm. how it kind of how the panic echoed into our pop culture and how our pop culture in turn influenced the panic. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Um And also, just if for whatever reason you don't know what the satanic panic is, which I'm assuming means you're five years old and you shouldn't be (laughs) listening to this (laughs) this episode. (laughs) To,
2: To be fair, someone who was born in 1990 would currently be 32 years old. And? Someone born at the end of the panic is 32 years old.
1: So no, okay. there's probably I, plenty of adults who
2: have no idea what this is. I was
0: born in 1995 and I know what the satanic is. Yes, panic but you're is. a
2: true crime junkie and
1: you and, like weird shit. And your parents and your parents let you you didn't grow up you grew up on the side of the attacked inside the panic. Actually, Whereas like that's a good for, point. for example, for me, I didn't really understand what the satanic panic was or, or that it was even a thing until I started like hanging out with you because I was on the other side of it, whereas like I grew up inside the 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 the, the people who were uh, a part of the panic.
2: <laughs> I, I see. Whereas I had I had no real. I mean, I knew about the panic. I don't remember when I learned of it, but it, I was never affected by it. I mean, I was raised by my parents. I mean, my stepfather is Catholic, and he would go to mass, but we wouldn't go with him. And my mom kind of has, I don't know, kind of an armchair Christian vi- kind of uh, yeah. vibe going.
0: Culturally Christian, but not an active practicer. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: something like that. And so it was it's just this, sh- this whole thing just missed me for a long time.
0: Yeah. Uh, Chris, when did you find out what the Satanic Panic was? And please don't tell me it was right now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, you're good. <laughs> Actually, I was born in 87, so I'm pretty aware of, ah, I've been pretty aware of it for a long time. But uh, I didn't really have like, I was able to do like a lot of stupid stuff when I was younger. So when I was like six years old, I was renting movies like The Shining. Oh, and uh, I, you know, I drink your blood and things like (laughs) that. So Great movies. uh, It was when I was probably in elementary school that uh, Satanic Panic was brought up. And I was like, I don't understand the big deal of it. You know, yeah, I've been aware of it a long time.
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, I didn't actually summarize what the satanic panic was because I made the joke about five-year-olds and Nick was like, mm, Jay,
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the satanic panic was a late 70s throughout the 80s kind of cultural zeitgeist in which a disturbingly, like it wasn't the majority of people, but it was a concerningly large amount of people. It was a vocal, a, a hyper vocal
2: Almost minority.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah. It, was, it, it was a group large enough that we needed to consistently deal with them for a long time yeah. afterwards. And basically, these, these, these well-meaning, frightened people who were not dealing with the changing cultural landscape very well uh, fell for some very prolific con artists and developed this belief that all across America, nay, across the entire world... There was a network of violent, nigh-all-powerful, satanic corporate hippies um, who were abducting tens of thousands of children every day and torturing them into madness, all in the glory of the great Lord Satan and these people were living secretly beside you and placing coded messages into Black Sabbath albums, and if you didn't do something about it right now, your son was going to become a satanic high priest and your daughter would have a child out of wedlock.
1: And for those of you that are saying, man, that sounds a lot like Pizzagate and QAnon, there's a reason for that. Yeah,
2: actually, I I've, I saw a lot of correlations between QAnon and the panic.
1: Yeah, uh, that's because it's the same foundation. It's the exact same foundation. It's actually
0: yep. a, a few of the satanic panic like agitators that made their money off of this. The ones that are still around and still talking have transitioned very neatly into being QAnon conspirators. That
2: shouldn't surprise me.
1: Nope. Yeah. It shouldn't.
0: I'm honestly a little surprised that Warren key hasn't been more active in QAnon, but he might just be in hiding at this point. He might
1: just be Q.
2: Oh, before we get into the book though, uh, Chris, would you mind telling us a little bit about your show and, uh, what, you know, your platform.
3: So, uh, I run a podcast called a horribly nerdy podcast. Uh, it's a podcast that is so bad, horrible is it its name. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, a lot of people they listen to it. They're like, "It's not that bad." I listen back, I'm like, "I don't see it. I think it's terrible." <laughs> but that I my like, I'm my own worst critic.
1: Like I said, I like I said when before we were on the air, I listened to the first couple episodes today and I enjoyed it. I enjoy you you're funny. You actually you think everything out. I would I would recommend it to those that are interested in the horribly nerdy kind of topics.
3: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I'm not going to lie
2: though. When I first saw the name of your podcast, I thought it was just called the Horrible Nerd Podcast, <laughs> and I, I had this image in my head of—I of, don't know if it was mean, meant you were bad at being a nerd or you were like a nerd that ate babies. Like I couldn't—I could figure <laughs> that out.
3: <laughs> That's Mix funny. both, you know. <laughs> uh.
2: Sorry, what were you saying? I cut you
3: off. Oh yeah, no, no. I mean, I cover everything from comic books, video games. I mean, I'm a big horror fan, so a lot of it is horror stuff. Like right now, this month of being uh, Women's History Month, of going through like historic women and comic books, video games, the horror, you know, all, all of horror itself, especially horror authors and horror films. I'm you,
4: listening. Yeah. If you
1: ever want somebody to come and ramble about comic books with you, especially about women, prominent comic book characters, have Jay come talk with you because oh, uh, all right. they cool. are a plethora of knowledge in that world.
2: I refer to them as my <laughs> DC Wikipedia
1: yeah. Uh,
0: my nice. yeah, my uh my ver- my very first tattoo was the Wonder Woman symbol and uh nice. last I counted, I believe I own I have to own over 20 Wonder Woman statues. Oh, at God, this yeah. point. I like, I can
2: see 3 right cool. now. I can act uh, in this basement, I can see 3 of them.
1: This is my desk that we do this on. And this is here
2: <laughs> on my desk. <laughs> Where was she supposed to go. <laughs> I, that, that's the funny <laughs> thing, is that Jay just keeps buying things, and they're just kind of infecting the house like herpes. Yeah. There's so no place to put them, to s- so they're just placed wherever.
0: Look, sometimes I remember that what happened to the West Memphis Three, and I just have to go shopping, or else, like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> uh, I'm going yes. to start that's setting fine. courtrooms on fire.
2: Like, <laughs> I, don't need a, I don't need a purpose, I need a purchase. <laughs> there you go. There's
3: no better therapy than retail therapy exactly
1: you're not wrong though uh arguably that's how this podcast even started uh was my own retail therapy and to buying uh (laughs) buying equipment so that i could talk into it for nobody but myself but now here we are um so where can uh, those those people that are going to be interested, because we have, I, I'm sure, quite a few nerds. We with, have a lot of horrible
2: nerds. Yeah. <laughs>
1: with the people that listen to us, because we are three horrible nerds as well, uh, <laughs> that would be very interested in what you've got to say. So where can people find your show?
3: So uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, all that. I'm Unfortunately, I'm not on Apple Podcasts. I'm still trying to work out the kinks of that one, but I'm mm. trying to get it on
4: there. All cool. right.
0: Cool.
3: But yeah.
4: All right. All right.
2: Are we ready to launch into the book?
0: Yes. And look yeah. at how many pages I have before we get to our first discussion question.
1: Is that a lot of pages?
2: I can't see. We've established this. I cannot see you. Oh, my God. That is a <laughs> lot of pages.
0: It's like 10.
1: Oh,
2: oh my God. Why?
0: I hate myself.
2: <laughs> I'm going to unbuckle my pants and get settled in. Let's do
1: this. Guess I should have brought a snack.
0: This week's book opens with both a foreword and an introduction because it's just that fucking fancy. The first of these is written by Adam Parfray, one of Anton LaVey's publishers. Throughout the 1980s, Parfray's publishing outfit, Feral House, found itself under fire and public scrutiny for their involvement with LaVey. For those unfamiliar, Anton LaVey was the founder and longtime high priest of the Church of Satan. In regard to the satanic panic, Parfray says... Satanism had now become the fall guy for all societal evils. He says now for a reason. In the 1960s, Satanism did not have much of a mainstream backlash. According to Parfray, most Americans saw it as just another New Age religion, a hippie product that, while not exactly respectable, was interesting and likely harmless. Parfray does not disagree with him. In his interactions with LeVay, his family, and the Church of Satan in general, he had this to say. Levay was not merely reacting to Christianity, but embracing a noir psychodrama. It was more or less nostalgia for the good old days. A weird old man, not the Lord of the Flies. Parfray closes his brief forward with this proclamation In these tea party days, the satanic panic refuses to disappear, rearing its head every month or so in sensationalistic headlines. The introduction, penned by Kirla Genesee, tells us of her family's own satanic anxiety. Her mother refused to buy Crest toothpaste, maintaining that parent company Procter & Gamble was in league with Satan. Apparently, there was a 666 hidden in the company's logo.
1: Just like Monster.
3: I was say,
0: yeah. <laughs> recalls how, despite all this fear, her mother still frequently consumed dark and disturbing media, seemingly drawn to the sources of her own anxiety. Dovetailing with Parfray's assertions... Genese believes that the panic was sown in the 1960s, stirred up in the 70s as the Vietnam invasion traumatized most of America, and finally caught fire in the Reagan years. The 70s offered agitating factors beyond America's crimes overseas. The great cult scare, in which hundreds of new religious movements, both toxic and benign, bloomed across America. The occult revival, in which witchcraft, demonology, and other safe avenues to the taboo became a mainstream trend, and the nature of 1970s horror— which introduced both an occult trend and a pedophilic one. That second trend, one of movies centered on children being preyed upon, is deemed by an essay to be a response to second-wave feminism. This is not an uncommon consensus in film studies, likely because it's true. <laughs> Parents responded, desperate to protect children they increasingly saw as vulnerable, maybe even under imminent attack. So they watched more closely tightened the reins, started to whittle away at the freedoms offered to earlier generations. But the kids responded too. As a rule, American children, especially teens, grew increasingly secretive and increasingly morbid and angry. Unable to understand why their smothered children violently pulled away, further anxiety grew in their parents as the cult scare overlapped with stranger danger and the serial killer boom. Either way, all of these factors had the American public of the 1980s good and prepped for a major sociological shift. Going into our first section, music, we're going to detail the backlash against heavy metal during the satanic panic. As Janese mentioned in her introduction, the 1970s saw an explosion of occult and satanic-themed rock music. Repeat listeners already know this from our episode on Season of the Witch, so forgive any brief retreads as we go forward. Our first essay, When Venom and King Diamond Met the Washington Wives, opens in 1985. The height of the satanic panic and well past the height of black metal band Venom, whom I may call Poison, just correct me, I'm human and those words are too close. (laughs) That year, Venom released a song called Possessed, which essay author Lisa LaDoser criticizes quite heavily. (laughs) Tipper Gore, wife of legendary climate change guy Al Gore, criticized (laughs) it too.
1: Oh my god, that was funny. I was not prepared for that. Critic- <laughs> for wife of legendary climate change guy. <laughs> ah. Great. Continue.
0: <laughs> Criticized it so much it ended up in front of the US Senate where it was used as evidence of America's alarming moral decay after witnessing her children engaging with the filthy music of Prince. Gore again, Tipper, not Al called a meeting at St. Columbia's Church and railed against music she labeled as porn rock. Through this meeting, during which Gore's inner circle of powerful, politically connected Washington socialites were introduced to the current state of rock, Gore began stirring up a major controversy among her peers. Many of the women who attended these meetings helped Gore form the Washington Wives, an anti-porn rock social club. The Washington Wives, in turn, formed a non-profit action group, called the Parents' Music Resource Center, often shortened to PMRC. Tipper Gore didn't create the satanic anxiety surrounding rock. While it dates back to rock's inception. Seriously, go read Season of the Witch or listen to our episode on it. It's all in there. The 1970s had brought a new spin to it. Several factors had convinced American parents that their sons were being seduced and sacrificed. Their daughters raped and forced to bear babies to be eaten by cultists. Satanic-themed bands were accused of backmasking, hiding messages in their records that could be heard when they were played backwards. Leveraging this anxiety, PMRC began pressuring record labels to put warnings on potentially offensive albums. They also wanted lyrics printed on album covers so parents could check them out beforehand. The music industry told them to fuck off. But funnily enough, Mrs. Gore was married to a member of a Senate committee and miraculously secured a hearing on the subject. Hoping to prove their point, the PMRC created the Filthy 15, a list of the 15 filthiest rock songs they could find. Each song was rated with one of the following, X for sexual references, D slash A for drugs and alcohol, V for violence, or O for occult. Nine of the 15 artists they found were from the heavy metal genre. And as with most rating systems, the PMRCs made very little sense and seemed to have no actual rules attached. For example, both Black Sabbath and Motley Crue, overtly satanic bands, had songs on the list but did not receive the occult rating. No coherent explanation was ever given as to why these 15 songs were the worst rock music had to offer, other than they were the ones PMRC hated the most. Or perhaps were the ones most likely to get someone's attention. Venom was on there for their occult aesthetic, but that's all it was. A look, a style, a love for the performance art of it. Biographer Ian Christie describes them thusly, Mock devil worship that merely expressed the desire to smash societal restraints and carve a space for unfettered fun. Merciful Fate, another occult band on Tipper Gore's hit list, took their Satanism much more seriously, while Venom merely took inspiration from Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible, Fate frontman King Diamond fully converted. Out of everyone on the Filthy Fifteen, the only ones to attend the Senate hearing were Frank Zappa and Dee Snider of Twisted Sister, both of whom pled the virtues of free speech. But drowning out their voices were expert opinions.
2: I really loved the picture in this book of uh, one of them in the committee hearing. Yeah, because he showed D. up. Snyder, yeah, yeah, he showed up
0: dressed like a rock
2: star ready for the stage and he's just (laughs) sitting there surrounded by dudes in suits calmly explaining his point great picture
1: twisted sister is not a band that i that i particularly like their music of personally but fuck do i respect d snyder just because that dude has been so active at making sure that the music isn't tainted like this any any further
2: yeah, no, that's a good point. He's he's been very involved in activism. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, if if you're if you're like a member of a fucking heavy metal band, you probably have some pretty strong opinions on censorship.
1: Well, yeah. I'm yeah. sure that hurt that hits even harder for somebody like D for somebody like D and Twisted Sister because they are a hair metal band. They are not anything more than that, and so being classified, in my opinion, to bands like Black Sabbath, they're just like. What?
0: Well, how do you think fucking Sydney Lopper felt? Uh, right. She's a pop <laughs> yeah. artist and they're like you're on the filthy 15 and she's like I'm just sitting here.
2: As we well as we know, Satan lives in hairspray
0: allegedly they put her on there because of sexual references in the song Shebop, which is about female masturbation. But still, the fact that female masturbation was put up alongside, you know, the consumption of babies for the glory of Lord Satan um, is probably a little disconcerting to Miss Lopper. And
1: wasn't she like a queer icon for a long time?
0: She still is. Yeah. She's very yeah. popular in the gay club scene. She's yeah. beloved.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought
0: that I, you know, know anything about that. <coughs> anyway, you do. <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Expert <laughs> opinions. Dr. Stussy, who claimed that the only successful heavy metal was about rebellion, violence, substance abuse, deviant sexuality, and satanism. Dr. King, who said troubled teens would be further led astray by this music as it glorified violence and evil and may fall into satanism when they confuse the music with religion. That's really dumb, but okay. And the women of PMRC crying for someone to please, please protect their children. Post-hearing, the PMRC refocused their campaign on Satanism, distributing hysterical research packets that did little more than frighten some already overwhelmed parents. They got their warning labels in the end, which the record industry ended up profiting off of. After all, Controversy sells. (laughs) Many of the bands who were dragged through the mud by gore and the PMRC not only didn't care, they didn't even notice. They kept making music, kept selling records, kept on living their lives how they chose to. But the kids suffered. Oh, God, how the kids suffered. With the bands out of reach, the anxiety and anger got dumped on their fans. Already troubled, socially isolated teens were labeled as Satanists when caught with metal albums. Listening to records became grounds for random searches of their rooms, their lockers, their diaries. Teachers, cops, and random adults in the community conjured scapegoats out of black clothes and piercings, and possession of subversive music and its paraphernalia was introduced as evidence in court cases. And in 1994, the West Memphis Three were arrested for triple homicide. They're associated with a musical genre, one of the key pieces of evidence. They remained falsely imprisoned for over 20 years. Uh, The West Memphis Three were three young men who were falsely accused of a triple homicide of three young boys. And as I just said, accusations of Satanism were dragged into the court case and they were sent to prison for over two decades.
2: Wasn't the only real evidence that one of them liked metal music? Yeah, and that's not 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 to say that's real evidence, but that was yeah, that
0: was that, that was what they that, used. That, as it, evidence. it wasn't
2: even like they were actually practicing any form of witchcraft or Satanism. They just liked metal.
0: It It is literally uh, if if any of you listening do not know what the hell I'm talking about. Look up this case. It is it is one of the things where if I think about it too long. I get angry and I have to go lay down. Yeah, I
2: mean, like, three ki- basically kids got their lives stolen from them to assuage some, mi- some you know, middle-class parents' fears.
0: Oh, and now that they're let out, a few of them have been, a couple of them have been, like, been on talk shows and published biographies. They still get called pedophiles yeah. on the street. They, they, st- they still, yeah, ugh. <laughs> Moving on. In our next essay, author Stacey Rusnak writes about a potentially less sympathetic target of the panic mtv the little music network that could mtv launched in 1981 blissfully unaware of the maelstrom it would eventually be caught in targeting the underserved demographic of 12 to 35 mtv embraced metal as a hot and marketable genre the majority of its programming being of course music video metal was a good genre to get in bed with due to its inherently theatrical and controversial nature Soon rife with videos of androgynous rock stars brandishing occult symbols and directly thumbing their nose at the establishment, the channel was beloved by the young and reviled by the overprotective. This is where Tipper Gore and her Knights of the Padded Table return with a church-approved vengeance. Having successfully forced record labels to begin policing their content, they were free to move on to MTV. The Metal videos were accused of filling young minds with corruptive imagery, such as Ozzy Osbourne's Mr. Crowley, in which he plays a vampire stalking and seducing a vulnerable young virgin. The video ends with the deflowered victim returning, dressed in revealing red clothing and sporting new fangs. Equally disturbing, to these people, was Metal's fascination with high fantasy. By this point, Dungeons & Dragons was being marched to the gallows, too. The genres being seen together was a bad look. The PMRC wasn't the only one coming for MTV. A psychiatrist working with institutionalized patients had it banned in his facility, claiming it further agitated the fragile state of his patients. He offered no examples, which is interesting. Then U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop called MTV pornographic and proclaimed that it would damage the intimate relationships between teenagers. A rock lecturer, which is a thing they had, named Rob Lamb said that music videos in general were evil, specifically because children would now know exactly how filthy and pornographic and rife with drugs all of their favorite songs were which I really want to take a moment and just marinate in the insanity of that <laughs> statement. <laughs> it's like, yes, they can listen to Prince, but if they watch the video, they're going to be gay.
2: Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, it really does paint a picture of how stupid they thought their kids were. It's like, yeah. yeah, no, they can listen to this music, but if they're not seeing it, they won't know what it's about. And I can tell you, as a kid who listened to some inappropriate music, I knew.
0: Brief aside, I used to I used to babysit like a three year old girl in the in the summers, and her mom would let her like put on like those music channels on cable where it's not even videos; it's just the music playing in the background. And one of the songs this girl liked the most was "S&M" by Rihanna. And I was like, "Why is this okay?" And the mom's like, "She doesn't know what it is." And I'm like, "Art." OK, again, I ask you, like, are you sure?
2: I, there was, a, I think like a six-month period when I was eight or nine where my favorite song was the thong song by Usher. And uh, that, that's by Cisco.: Oh that sorry, Cisco, not Usher. Yeah, and uh, I knew what it was about, even then, I knew. Children, people
0: think children are stupid, and they're actually really, really not. But um, I think by the time children are two years old, uh, they not only know what all of the swear words mean. They know which context they're supposed to use them in.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: They actually learn swear words more easily than they learn not Of course they do. Words. They're the most fun words. The best words. Going back to MTV, some small towns had it banned within their city limits. In one instance, the cable company offered lockout boxes so parents could choose to keep it out of their homes. This was refused. The entire network had to be unavailable to everyone. Two women in Maryland believed that so much that they tried to get the network banned nationwide, obviously to no avail. Meanwhile, the PMRC was trying a repeat of their success with the warning labels, demanding that content warnings come before videos. Despite the FCC also telling them to fuck off, MTV did it anyway and created an in-house standards division. However, much like PMRC, their standards were lax and inconsistent, with most highly popular acts getting a pass entirely. According to Rusnick, MTV was scapegoated for the same reason most of these things were scapegoated. Reagan-era culture wars and a traumatized nation trying to cope. The Reagan years, Rusnick tells us, were about comfort, about the reassurance that things would be fine, that this was temporary, whatever this was, and everything was going to be normal again very soon. So beating back against the voices on the left, screaming for change in the present, the right in the center and those profiting off of them, deified the past and sanctified the future. Children became our most precious resource, something to be cherished and protected and controlled so they could build the best America possible. Someday. So when those children rebelled, when we stopped understanding them, when they told us we were wrong and they'd never, ever be like us, and the thought of blaming yourself or blaming your values was too much to bear... The satanic panic offered you someone else to blame. It's those damn comic books, those damn D&D games, that damn MTV. But you can't get rid of music entirely, now can you? And not every kid is going to listen to pop or country or church music. Some of them will always need something different. So what do you do? David Bertrand tries to answer that in Stealing the Devil's Music, The Rise of White Metal and Christian Punk. If you'll forgive the Avengers' quote, strength invites challenge, and amidst the festering panic, several Christian hard rock bands emerged to issue that challenge. By the 1980s, rock had become secular enough that just about any cultural template could be laid over it, and for all the reasons laid out above, metal was appealing to a generation burnt out by drugs, wars, and the other traumas of the hippie era. Some of those fans found themselves again, in churches. But the angry, rebellious music so despised by their new community didn't lose its appeal. As the culture wars heated up, some devout Christians who resonated with metal sought to combine their passions. What was more, some saw this as an act of religious devotion. By stealing the music Satan used to seduce the vulnerable, perhaps it could be used as a tool for Christ. Well, Christian rock and metal were ceded in 1971 by California's Agape, The truest example of these arrived in the latter half of the 70s, with Swedish bands Jerusalem and Leviticus. While the genre certainly had its fans from the beginning, it was not until the band Striper, with their debut album The Yellow and Black Attack, that any progress was made on breaking into the mainstream. In 1986, their song To Hell with the Devil went platinum, and they had officially escaped their evangelical niche. However, the genre struggled to find legitimacy. Despite Striper and their imitators finding a mainstream audience, metal fans and Christians alike continue to reject them for parallel reasons. A Christian agenda did not belong in metal music. Each side saw the other as a corrupting influence, something to be mocked, ignored, or driven out. Rusnik tells us of a festival that Striper was booked for, only to receive a hostile response from an anti-Christian crowd. Their drummer had even been crucified in effigy, which honestly would have driven me off the stage. Some Christian communities, like the Cavalry Church of SoCal, tried to embrace these born-again metalheads, hosting Christian rock events and incorporating metal music into their services. Perhaps the biggest of these was the Sanctuary Movement, which was actually an update to Cavalry Church, and the brainchild of Pastor Bob Beeman, catering to young Christians who felt out of place in the broader community, Sanctuary through full metal concerts complete with moshing. Sanctuary was so successful that it's still alive to this day on multiple continents, complete with splinter groups focusing on goth or industrial whatever the youth are poisoning themselves with now. But Pastor Bob isn't a bridge-building saint. In his more recent talks, such as a 2012 episode of his podcast, he admits his part in creating the back-masking panic. In the 1970s and 80s, he toured the country, condemning immoral music and warning parents that it would steal their children's souls. Even as he fought to make Christian metal acceptable, he still demonized its source, a haunting parallel to the early church's vicious turn on their Jewish forebearers. Pastor Bob regrets this now and says he created a real monster. But as profitability was proven, record labels began emerging to cater to this new demographic, fuel on the fire for the controversy already burning. Many anti-metal voices began targeting Christian groups more and more heavily, painting them as satanic double agents, infiltrating pure communities with malicious intent. Televangelist and dedicated metal hater Jimmy Swaggart railed against the performers for profiting off their Christian aesthetics while still indulging in an ungodly lifestyle and declared that no true Christian would desire to get rich off of Christ's name.
1: Says the TV evangelist.
0: On a completely unrelated note, Mr. Swaggert has a net worth of $10 million and has faced numerous prostitution scandals.
1: I like how, whenever you
2: say something disturbing, you slip into customer service voice.
0: Sir, <laughs> <laughs> sir, I need you to relax as I reveal to you the truth. <laughs> the truth is your coupon is expired. <laughs> <laughs> Not to admit that Swagface could ever have a point, but there were certainly groups who just wanted a new marketing tactic. Striper rises to the surface again. The band was originally a secular act, after all. But after dropping the name Rock's Regime, their label Enigma signed a co-distribution with a Christian imprint. Part of Striper's crossover success is directly attributed to this dual-arm approach in their marketing. And they were not the only ones. While some groups saw it as a gimmick from the beginning, others simply lost their faith. As I Lay Dying frontman Tim LeBasis is a lapsed Christian, but his band continued taking money from the Christian market long after they had lost the spirit. Furthermore, Lambesis assessed his fellow Christian metal musicians thusly, in my 12 years of touring with As I Lay Dying, maybe one in 10 Christian bands we toured with were actually Christian. This feigning of belief is another interesting parallel. Recall how Venom used Satanism as a motif, whereas King Diamond was an actual Satanist. Lembasis goes on to say that the real market value of Christian metal comes from anxious parents. Without even researching the band or checking the lyrics, they give their kids full license to listen, the godly aesthetic more than enough for them in the modern era. In the 21st century, most Christian denominations feel the same. All genres are safe so long as the creators are saved and no additional questions need to be asked. Which brings us to our first question. Whoa! Ooh.
2: It was a long march to get here. I'm ready.
0: In the final essay we covered here, we saw a minority of devout Christians who were also fans of countercultural music, some of whom were embraced by Christian music labels and then reached mainstream success. Those familiar with the transition of riot girls to corporate girl groups may be experiencing deja vu, but the phenomenon has actually repeated in countless musical genres and other mediums. So I ask you... My fellow podcast people, is anything subversive immune to appropriation by the mainstream or would the establishment always absorb the aesthetics of rebellion?
2: Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if this classifies as an as a rebellious aesthetic. But when I was thinking about this question, um, the only thing that that sprang to mind is uh, the other stuff we talk about on this show. Uh, a lot of the paranormal and UFO stuff. I would say. Uh, The mainstream struggles to adopt that said that's not rooted in rebellion and also um, that's kind of not true anymore. We're Mm -hmm. starting to see more and more television shows mainstream attention. Uh, So I I don't think so especially because once you have I guess once you get these uh, movements going right. And those movements get a lot of young people behind them, and those young people have some money, and someone out there is going to go, "Hey, I want to get that some money," and so they're going, they're going to commercialize it. And that's not—I don't even think that really has anything to do with rebellion. That has more to do with capitalism. It has
1: everything to do with capitalism. It is.
2: It. it I. I think it comes from people who are. Uh, I mean, as with most decisions that are made in this country. Ultimately, they're they're coming from people who aren't thinking about uh, moral or ideological uh, motivations. They're they're making a buck that that they are taking. They are joining into the machine. And I mean, you can make your own moral judgments right or wrong about that. But I think that that likely has a, is a truer source of the phenomenon than the idea of taming rebellion. Uh, because, I mean, ultimately, rebellion's profitable. I mean, you think about the fact Mm -hmm. that, like, I mean, anytime you have something that is demonized, the what's the reaction from the youth? They they eat it up like and just from my own lifetime. I mean, I know Rory can attest to this. I kept thinking about Harry Potter. Yeah. The more the outcry happened against it, the more people of my generation were rabid to get their hands on those books. Yeah. They became this forbidden fruit, which is ridiculous because it's like the most wholesome thing imaginable. Yeah.
0: My parents actually specifically sought out banned children's books. And like, if they looked at them and thought they were like appropriate for where me and my sister were at emotionally, they like deliberately read them to us because they were banned because their whole, like I've mentioned many times, they're, they're atheists. Their whole thing is if somebody tells you, you can't do something, your immediate question should be why followed Mm -hmm. by fuck you.
2: Yeah. See, I, I, I wasn't, I just wasn't monitored or restricted in what I read and I turned out fine.
1: I, I mean, I, I, that was one of the things that like, I, I will say my parents were good at was not, um, now you're not censoring what I read, uh, just because. Well, a lot of it was they didn't, they they didn't know, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. You know, they they weren't like, especially when Harry Potter first started coming out, we weren't, uh, the, like going to church then. We were, you know, still uh, holiday Catholics at, at that point. So when I got attached to the books when I was what uh, twelve, eleven, twelve years old, when I got attached to those books, they were like, "Yay!" You know, Rory's reading, which. Well, it isn't a surprise. I read like a, you know, I, I read, I read, whatever. It's
2: almost like we have a podcast about reading right. books. Right.
1: <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, music was a, was a whole different thing, especially because I was very into the metal scene when I got into high school. Um, so, like, a lot of the bands uh, that were, that have been, that are mentioned throughout here, it's like I I listened to obsessively for so long. Like, even like the the eight like more of the eighties like into the eighties metal scene, I was super I, I liked that it was a big introduction for me, and then I started getting into the heavier stuff, but funny, like as I lay dying was a was a band that I listened to even before I was into the uh the the Christian metal scene, which I then became a very big a part of um I went to several all Christian metal band shows um I saw for today which was a very popular metalcore band that broke up a couple years ago. I've seen them live probably 5 or 6 times. Um I've saw I've seen Under Oath live. It's another Christian metal band. Going into the more pop punk, I saw Reliant K live several times. Um and everybody everybody in the, if you were if you were around in the early aughts, you've heard Reliant K because they were uh, all over the radio and they're one of those ones that for a long time i i couldn't speak to how they are now or towards the end but when they were um super like when they were first starting out they were super active about their christianity like uh they made they made time to preach a little bit in their shows um for today uh who by the way even for being a christian metal band phenomenal music that that band produces um but yeah they're broken up now, but if you'd gone to see him before, you would have been preached at because Maddie Montgomery, the lead singer for today, will preach at you um a lot, like even at warp tour, which are thirty minute sets, he took time to <laughs> preach at you a little bit, yeah, and like I met the dude. he's super nice, like super good, super cool dude, just very up his own ass about his faith. Um, whatever uh but to your to your point, um I don't think, or to your question, I don't think anything is off the table, especially when it comes to trying to monetize it. Like, uh, anybody sees a, a a niche that has the potential to make money, they're, they're going to go for it, especially in America. Um, Tooth and Nail Records, which is like a more modern label, sign a ton of Christian metal bands. And I don't even think they're a Christian label before today was signed to Tooth and Nail. Um,
0: Oh yeah, like I in this in this essay, I um I was shocked how many of the Christian metal bands they listed where it was like I listened to this in high school and I like I I only found out a few years ago. It's like, do you know Skillet's Christian metal? And I'm oh, like, oh "No, yeah. I didn't know." They're pro- they're
1: problematic now. The lead singer uh the lead singer of Skillet is one of the people that's shouting about uh Literally, like shouting, because you know they fill stadiums. They're so popular. Skillet. Oh
0: yeah, it's it's Skillet.
1: They're incredibly popular, and in his shows now, he's preaching. uh, He's yelling about how uh, the Christian lifestyle is being demonized, and you know we're 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 the minority now, and it's like, well, first off, calm the fuck down, buddy. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. but no, like he's pretty problematic now, and I loved Skillet. Like, I still have a hard time not listening to the music because it's so goddamn catchy. (laughs) So this scene is, like, I was literally, like, brainwashed a part of it for so long. Um, But, yeah, no, there's nothing that they won't profit off of. But I I was glad to see that they said, like, uh, one in ten of those, those bands weren't actually Christians. A lot of it was, like, Christian name. Like, a great example of that is Under Oath, which is, like, baby's first emo band. You know, they were, they, they were a screamo band that came out at the beginning of like when they used started getting popular and, you know, the used, I would argue is one of the Kickstarters to, to screamo music. Um, but they were like one of the, one of the bands that you, that you'd listen to if you're into, like, if you were into emo music at all. And they were, uh, in quotations, Christian band. And it was mostly because they didn't swear. And the lead singer was a Christian and that's it. <laughs> oh, that, but that got them enough
0: oh, oh, so to the, so the exact thing Tim was talking about, right?
1: Yeah, and it's like, but that got them enough that they're like, yeah, we're a Christian band. Is that going to make it so that you'll let your little Christian, your little Christian kids buy our music? So that they can Mm. listen come to our shows? Yes, absolutely.
0: There's an entire South Park episode about this exact thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's
1: because it's it's real.
2: Also, I mean, they're on like season uh, 174. So what isn't there a South Park episode about? It's like the Simpsons phenomenon.
0: Yeah, I'm just terrified that someday I'm going to log on to like Twitter or Tumblr and it's going to be like it's a South Park episode mocking me specifically. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, (laughs) okay, guys, bottom of the barrel. Neat.
3: What about
2: you, Chris? What do you think?
3: So, no, I agree there's nothing off limits. Um, actually, I'll be honest, I had no idea half those bands were even Christian bands. Uh, that's how far out of the loop I was. Like No, so,
0: same.
1: If you weren't actively in it, you wouldn't have known.
3: Like, the only Christian band I ever knew that was Christian was P.O.D. And that's like... Fuck yeah. That was the only thing for me, but it's like, I grew up on, like, I remember being in a car seat and I would listen to like Beth Leppard, Sticks, all that. You know, that was mm-hmm. what my dad listened to, and so fuck yeah, I yeah. I had no idea, yeah, I had no idea any of this stuff. So I know as I was getting older and I was hearing all about Christian music and like and what they call you know Black Sabbath and all that. I'm like, that's devil music. I mean, that's just <laughs> shit I listened to when I was a baby. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs>
2: i didn't know that i was a satanist with a pacifier
3: exactly i had no idea now now all those murders make sense
2: <laughs> yes i i mean though, no, but really it i mean kind of harking back to what everyone's been saying here it, it's one thing about that topic though that that strikes me is uh, how indicative it is of the panic in general in terms of at its root once you get past the manufactured moral outrage and the conspiracy theories. At its root, I mean, really, it is a group of people who saw a situation they can make a buck off of Mm -hmm. and didn't care who got hurt in doing it. Yeah. There is such there's such a cynical core to this period in history that I don't know, like reading this book, I really loved liked this book at the same time. It hurt me to keep reading because every, every single essay was like, let's read about how this dickbag decided to make money at people's expense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a reason we're closing this, this episode with a section on frauds and the ongoing harm they do, because this is a, again, this is a thing I get legitimately emotionally worked up about.
2: Yeah. No, I, I could see why I, uh, this book definitely gave me a deeper perspective on the panic because, I mean, I like I said, I've listened to podcasts about the panic. I've I've seen a couple documentaries about it, but it was always very uh, I mean, usually it was from the angle of look at these murders that happened. And were they satanic? Woo, woo, woo. It's like n- n- none of it was. I mean, they well, that's yeah. the sad thing is there might have been some genuine evil being done to people, but the satanic yeah. panic created this smoke cloud that that hit it and basically gave actual predators a way to just escape any sort of investigation by just dressing up their crimes uh in satanic set dressing because then no one would believe it because hey the satanic panic's not real
1: can i uh, i i have one thing that is not related to the question but is related to the topic of music that i think is funny and would like or ironic and i would like to share um so I, I, you know, they were focused, the, they being the people who were focused on administering this panic uh, in the music, like the Gores, you know, or uh, Tipper Gore, whatever. Uh, they were focused on a lot of these super popular bands, right? Um, Motley Crue, Black Sabbath. Good bands to be focused on because they were the inspiration for a lot of the, a, a lot of other, uh, like, you know, future to become death metal bands. But in, you know, they started this in the seventies. That was kind of before death metal really took off. Death metal really took off in the eighties. In, uh, I think like early eighties, mid eighties, 1984, I think a band from, I think Finland, uh, came into existence. They're called mayhem. Uh, for anybody who's into death metal, you'll know who mayhem is, uh, the the reason why I bring them up is I think it's funny that they were looking at all these super popular bands who were tangentially related to the occult because as much as like Tony Iommi and and uh, Ozzy Osbourne were interested in things like Aleister Crowley and all that I would say that they were more um,
2: armchair occultists yeah
1: armchair occultists yeah. they they weren't they they were not at the level of people like Bowie. You know, or or yeah, they, they, or or, or uh, Pink Floyd, or you know, they 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 weren't on that level for called they. If anything, I would call I I would I would have said that they were interested in this because it made sense to the style of music, not the other way around. You know, um. So Mayhem came into existence, a super hardcore metal band, in 1984. So still during this time period, in 1991. Um, one of the members of the band killed himself in 1993. Another oh, I know of the,
2: what band you're talking about um, now.
1: Another member of the band in 1994 killed one of the other members of that band. Yeah. So that's part of the, the thing. Now, had the people uh, uh, that were uh, doing this Satanic Panic thing looked anywhere inside the music scene outside of what was being played on the radio, they would have seen actually scary things that were happening amongst some other bands, Mayhem just being one example. Um, I remember uh when I was in high school, I got super into a death metal band also from Finland uh called Children of Bodum. Awesome band. If you're into guitar at all, um listen to them because Alexi Leho is probably one of the best guitarists of all time, in my opinion. He's just fucking incredible. Um but I remember I was wearing a Children of Bodum t shirt and I went to see one of my uh, one of my family members. And he said, oh, you shouldn't be wearing that. They're, you know, the children of Bodum, they're, they're talking about a demon. Uh, the name, children of Bodum, is a reference to the Lake Bodum murders in Finland. It's just one of the largest unsolved cases in Finland. That's it. That's what, it's nothing to do with the demon. So where did that come from? It's that fear still there, you know, yeah. pulpating 20 years later. I Whatever.
2: mean, we even see that though now, I mean, in a lot of paranormal shows where, uh, they'll encounter a reference to some sort of other deity or spirit and the immediate thing is, oh, that's a demon. Like we, a lot of people just assign demon to any yeah. weird name they don't yeah. understand.
1: But really like Bodum is the, the whole thing. It's like it, they, the, that, the town where the Lake Bodum murders happen is where Alexi Leho is from. That's why they're children of Bodum. Hmm. but um i get it now yeah i may may not have
3: just googled them and added my youtube list you
1: you should i don't think there's i think they i think they're done like musically i think they haven't produced anything in a long time but it's still worth they got 10 albums it's worth listening to every single one of them especially follow the reaper like fuck that album is gold if you like heavy fast metal like that Mm -hmm. shit's gold that shit's good highly recommend um but I guess the point is like my, my whole point of this that I just thought was kind of funny was that they were looking at all these bands and they weren't even looking at the right ones. They could have found actually, (laughs) they could have found bands that were way, way scarier saying way scarier things if they had looked even a little bit, but instead they, because they were just trying to stigmatize everything that was being played on the radio so that they could do whatever it is they wanted to do. They just, they threw the, they threw the shoe at whatever they thought would fit. And that's just, it's just funny to me that they they completely missed the m- missed their actual opportunity. but
2: you know what I think part of the reason for that is is because uh, if they said, "Hey, this weird Finnish band is satanic," people were like, "Yeah, so what?" Whereas you say Black Sabbath is is yeah. is evil, satanic,
1: but it's not like Mayhem was unknown. No, they were if, being played over here.
2: Yeah, but Sabbath was definitely, I think, on the radio. Oh no,
1: I, I think, they were I, for sure. That's they, what I'm saying is like they picked the radio bands because of that, and I get it. Yeah, but they could have used it. Instead of saying like, but you know, well, they could have still used the radio bands, but being like, look what Black Sabbath did to Mayhem, yeah. because Mayhem, it, I mean, they cite Black Sabbath as an inspiration for them, you know, because how could you not?
0: I, I say this for whatever amount of respect is 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 due to her, because I don't know what that amount is. Tipper Gore was much more interested in catching people's attention and giving them easily repeatable sound bites in order yeah. to spread her rhetoric oh, yeah. than she was in actually making a case. And so things like Children of Bodom and even Mayhem would have involved needing to explain to them yeah. who those people were. And she she and her group were not interested in that. Like, like you guys said, it, it was Black Sabbath. It's like, okay, just, just focus on Black Sabbath and Sidney Lauper... And honestly they were probably hoping for a bigger pushback from the groups that they actually named than they got. They were probably pretty disappointed that only a couple people from Twisted Sister showed up to be like what are you talking about? Yeah.
1: And I could go on forever about this topic specifically, especially because there's a period of time where I listened to hardcore satanic uh uh black metal bands like Dimmu Borgir and 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 that are you know all these like Finnish and Norwegian metal bands that are super awesome. And they're actually satanic metal bands. And I wasn't a Satanist. I just, the music was great. And uh, that, that, that's it.
2: The Satan has always.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't wrong. disagree. Yeah. Yeah,
3: there's a reason well, for I love that. that they pick, I love that they picked those 15, but then they leave out sympathy for the devil, which is literally <laughs> <Right>? sympathizing <laughs> the devil.
4: Yeah.
0: They didn't put highway to hell on there. I, I could not. Exactly. Put it. I Hell's could... bells, highway to hell.
2: I could not believe that the Rolling Stones escaped that list. Oh, I agree.
0: Uh, honestly?
2: I mean, Mick Jagger's whole thing was he was the devil dandy. Yeah. They, that was his whole yeah. gimmick.
0: That might have been because maybe the PMRC women liked Rolling Stone and Mick Jagger. That's and fair. they were probably like, well, it's Jagger. It's kind of like, I've heard so many old school racists be like, Oprah's not like the rest of them. <laughs>
4: Oh Jesus. Oh God. The actual
0: thing I have heard. I wow. Working hospice is a fucking trip, y'all.
4: Uh, I
2: believe it. <laughs> I mean, I especially because like it's not just they you know, an older generation, but it's like, I'm at the end of my life. What the fuck do I care? You no one can right? cancel me, but God now. Our- All right. <laughs> Are we ready to move to the next section before we spin truly into deeper lunacy? Yeah.
1: I, like I said, I could talk about, I could talk about this forever, which is right. also probably why season of the witch at the season of the witch episode is as long as it is because music is one of my passions. So yeah, we should probably move on before I think of something else to talk about. <laughs> All
0: right. We're going to move on to our next section, which is going to dive heavily into the media coverage of the panic. <laughs> Hey, want to hear a really dumb question? Here goes. Why is true crime so popular now? Why have people become so ghoulish? What's this obsession with death? That is a dumb question because it implies that true crime was, at some point, unpopular. Now, I could walk you through the Ripper years, through the frenzy around Gunness Farm, through the media circus that Lizzie Borden's trial turned into. But we don't need to go back that far. We only need to go back as far as Leslie Hatton's essay, All Hail the Acid King, which covers the 1984 murder of Gary Lowers and the public's response to it. Gary Lowers was a teenager living in a middle class neighborhood on Long Island. His life was cut short by 17 year old Ricky Casso. Allegedly angry over stolen hits of the drug mescaline, Casso stabbed Lowers 32 times and vandalized his body by gouging out his eyes. He committed this act in front of two witnesses. These boys claimed that Caso tried to get Lowers to declare his love for Satan as he died. Not satisfied yet, Caso left Lowers' corpse unburied in the Azteca woods and over the next two weeks led at least two dozen other teenagers into the trees to look at it. Lowers' family never filed a missing persons report. It took the anonymous tip of yet another teenager to get the police to notice something was wrong. With that tip in hand, the Northport cops finally found Lauer's decaying corpse. They wasted no time in calling the press and declaring the murder satanic. Official statements from the department labeled Lauer as a sacrifice. Both they and the press zeroed in on these scant elements of devilry and only grew more frantic when, 48 hours after his arrest and confession, Ricky Casso took his own life. Perhaps the cops and the press were simply searching for answers to the question all of America was asking. How did it get to this point? In other words, we do not believe a child from a white, well-off neighborhood could do this, so what the hell tricked him into it? They asked for answers and then saw what they wanted to see. Casso was an addict. Casso was a metalhead. Casso was a Satanist. The devil had come to Newport and now two kids were dead. Funny how no one cared until the corpse started to smell. Drawn to the rot, satanic panic advocates hoisted up this case as ironclad proof of the devil's cunning influence. While the trial went ahead without Casso and without the devil, one of the witnesses pinned enough blame on the other to send him to prison on second-degree murder charges, and the prosecution chose to focus on the drug element over the Satan shit. That didn't stop the rest of America from running with the lie. David St. Clair, for example, wrote a book about the incident wherein he placed most of his emphasis on Casso's love of heavy metal and the impact its occult influences might have had on him. One review of the book said that St. Clair seemed to believe that Ozzy Osbourne had emerged from Casso's speakers and handed him the murder weapon.
2: Which, arguably, great image.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Mr. Osbourne was there of just being like, Here's a knife. Go cut yourself a bagel. You look real starved, kid. (laughs) And then he started stabbing someone. Huzzy was like, fuck, fuck, I just ran away. Like, no, not again. Why does this keep happening to me? Ah,
2: yes. That explains the string of bagel knife murders across the
0: country. (laughs) Furthermore, St. Clair may have gone so far as to invent lies or at least repeat them. The book claims that Lauer was a Satanist too and attributes this revelation to Casso's last statement before his suicide. But the grim reality is that the courts deemed this statement inadmissible and it was never released. We cannot be fully certain it was real or contained anything that St. Clair claimed it did. A more sympathetic portrait of Ricky Casso nearly came in the form of Where Evil Dwells, a full-length film about the entire incident which was never released. Makers David Wozjornowicz and Tommy Turner wanted to understand Casso and to explore the community's pain. A song by the same name from band Wiseblood is found on the soundtrack and is explicitly about Casso. Lyricist J.G. Thurwell described Casso as the figurehead of a movement which is troubling in or out of context. Wiseblood was not alone, with some bands like Dead Milkmen using references to the murder for shock value, while others like Big Audio Dynamite condemned the way the media had sensationalized the whole thing. But the further and further we move from the actual murder, the less Ricky Casso's pain and Gary Lauer's horrible death are portrayed accurately. Movies cop from the story, but make Ricky a serial killer or a bad seed who slaughtered dozens instead of one. While the most titillating aspects of heavy metal and Satanism stay front and center, filmmakers shy away from several other important facts, namely that Lauer lay dead in the woods for nearly three weeks before anyone bothered to do something about it. Speaking of the media profiting off the misery of others, let's talk about Geraldo Rivera and yeah. his TV specials on oh. Satanism. It's,
2: like here's, I knew right. who, I knew who he was. <laughs> I knew who he was before reading this book, but now mm-hmm. that I've read... Strictly, that one particular essay... Any I can't think of his name without immediately following it with that son of a bitch.
0: This is the yeah. essay where I had to set down the book because I started laughing too hard, and I said out <laughs> loud into our house in at two in the morning, Bob Bordella wasn't a Satanist, you stupid stoner. And I don't understand why I called Geraldo Rivera a stupid stoner specifically. Because he probably
1: probably is, to be <laughs> honest.
0: But that was what fell out of my mouth of it's like Bob Bordella. Was a dork. <laughs> like,
2: what about those 10,000 souls, Buster? Shut the fuck up. <laughs>
0: uh, oh,
1: Jesus Christ.
0: In the essay, interestingly enough, titled What About These 10,000 Souls, Buster, Allison Lang takes <laughs> us inside this iconic TV special where Ozzy Osbourne himself was teleconferenced in to offer his opinion. This is presumably the same technology that allowed him to deliver murder weapons to teenagers on the other side of the country. (laughs) (laughs) And Rivera had a doozy of a question for him. Every single kid who committed a violent act in Satan's name was also into heavy metal music. What is your response to that, Oz? For context, this discussion was coming on the heels of a segment about a 14-year-old boy who had murdered his mother and slit his own throat. Like Casso, everyone blamed the kid's record collection. Ozzy did his best to answer, assuring Rivera that he was just a musician, that he wasn't trying to hurt anyone, that he sang about things other than Satan, but Geraldo wasn't having it and cut him off to jump to the next clip. This one of an actual murderer.
1: Because why Mm. listen to the guy who writes the music?
2: Because he's not saying what I want him to say. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) 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 This was his... an actual murderer, like she's an actual murderer who was teleconferencing in from death row. Yep. That's what he cut Ozzy yep. Osbourne off for.
3: Yep. <laughs> this guy will talk about Satan for me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. then he didn't. The best part was then he didn't. He was like, I killed because I felt like it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so would you, do you Would you say that you killed for, because of Satan?
0: Nah, I was bored.
1: Yeah, that's fucking
2: insane what you just said. Cut back to Ozzy. <laughs> and Ozzy's just like, I was bored too. Just cut back to Ozzy. He's
1: just spreading cream cheese on a bagel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's just whispering, Ricky, you could have had this.
1: Unfortunately, Ozzy was probably high, but that's okay. his face. Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm not sure uh, Mr. Osborne would remember this period of his life.
0: <laughs> I was about to ask, it's like, do you think Ozzy has any memory of recording this special? Or is he Hell like, no. I did what? <laughs>
1: I don't, I don't think Ozzy has any
3: memory of yesterday.
1: Yeah, no, there's was, there was far too many drugs that have run through that man's system to uh, have, be able to have any kind of memory at this point.
0: This special, called Devil Worship Exposing Satan's Underground, has been called many things. Manipulative. Misleading. Obscene. Highly entertaining. Insulting to everyone. I could go on. Opening with a montage of metal videos, vandalized graveyards, and actual crime scenes, Satan's Underground was made with the express purpose of convincing America that the devil was in your own backyard and was going to eat your favorite child.
2: God damn it, you could have taken Ricky.
0: (sighs) He did take Ricky.
2: Oh, that's right. Sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Rest in peace, Gary Lauer. Becoming NBC's top-rated two-hour special of all time, this mockery of decent journalism further agitated a fragile situation, heavy with Rivera's signature style of confrontainment, which prioritizes big, loud, and scandalous over true. This special included highlights such as calling a convicted murderer and trying to trick him into saying he'd killed in the name of Satan. A bunch of racist shit about voodoo. (sniffs) Yup. Like,
1: so, I, 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 so love, much I love that part, too, voodoo. because
0: it's just, I'm going to
2: show you a voodoo ritual. Look at that. What, what is it? Look, it doesn't matter. Look at it. It's clearly Satanism. Didn't even ask questions but, about it. But what is it? It doesn't matter. It's Satanism.
0: Screaming the names of iconic serial killers is a list of examples of Satan's minions. Several of the men he listed were self-described Christians. I am the true crime person. Email me if you want elaborations. And the truly fantastic <laughs> quote, now, incest is nothing new. But more and more, it is taking on the dark overtones of Satan. That was about the McMartin preschool case, by the way. Yeah, but,
2: but I'm sorry. It's just, yeah, it's taking on dark overtones because pedophilia was so fucking lovely before that. It was soft and cuddly <laughs> to have sex with your daughter, right?
1: It,
3: it, Super lighthearted.
2: Yeah.
1: See, it was acceptable until Satan was involved.
2: Good old American yeah, values. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, no, no, that as makes long sense.
1: As, as long as it was God saying it was okay, then we were fine, but the fact that Satan's influencing this now? No. Hey, get it, the fuck. Get your sa- satanic hands off my child. Hey, hey, hey.
2: <laughs> Incest is between a parent and their child. No threesomes are allowed in the Bible. Oh god.
0: I can name several, but moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Not content to bother Ozzy Osbourne, who was probably very tired. Rivera had an entire panel of people to annoy. Two of these guests were Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino and his wife Lilith. Aquino was, in addition to his military title, a high priest of the Temple of Set, a splinter group from Leve's Church of Satan, because that was a thing that could happen once upon a time. <laughs> Earlier in the panic, the couple had been accused of ritually abusing their children. These allegations were proven false, but Rivera's people threatened to restart the controversy if the couple failed to appear. Alongside them was Zena Shrek, LaVey's own daughter, a conventionally attractive blonde woman. Her role as the church's spokesman and one of her father's confidence was treated secondary to the fact that she was a beautiful satanist and therefore arousing.
2: I mean, I do have to say, like, looking at the pictures in here, I mean, the gothy bombshell, that is exactly the kind of figure that I... Would have spent most of my teen years lusting after. And,
0: and that's and yeah. that's fair, but I understand why she got so sick of her looks oh, being so important.
2: Absolutely, I understand. I'm just saying that is a pretty Satanist.
0: Yeah.
3: It's also 90% of TikTokers nowadays. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You're not wrong.
0: That's actually a super good point. Like I'm on Tumblr. I can't really cr- I can't really criticize the image of a beautiful Satanist. That's that's just my mutual feed.
4: Uh.
0: (laughs) alongside them were a christian reverend and a former fbi agent and rivera conferenced in other guests or planted biased experts in his live audience rivera's questions were leading his demeanor aggressive and inconsistent and his treatment of guests nakedly unequal when panelists objected to his tactics or said something he found contrary to his wants they were cut off he encouraged them to answer in sound bites, even telling Aquino that the audience needed two-syllable words or less. Quote, they won't be able to understand you if you start getting philosophical. Guess it's comforting that he views his audience as dimly as he views his guests. Shrek, for her part, felt like a prop, a bimbo who was barely allowed to speak at all. In private, off air, I have pointed out to my colleagues that this treatment of her occurs in this very book, with more than one male author spending more time on her looks than on what she did for her father's church.
1: True. Very true.
0: Seething with rage, Zena sat through the taping, hoping against hope she could defend her faith even a little bit. Named spokesman in her 20s, just as the church hit a big decline, she'd been doing this more or less solo, but was going down swinging. She described the grisly tales of ritual abuse spun on the show as pornography and wondered if maybe some of these people just wanted a platform for their personal fantasies. During the closing monologue, she tried to make one last statement, and her mic was disconnected. To this day, she reflects on the ordeal with anger. I'm glad Zena talked about satanic ritual abuse and how she found its in-depth descriptions to be suspect. She is not the only one, and these cartoonish portrayals of sexual abuse lead us directly into our next essay. Adrian Mack pens the grim and frustrated piece False History Syndrome, HBO's indictment, the McMartin trial. For those unfamiliar, the McMartin preschool case was a notorious clown show of a trial in which the McMartin family was charged with literally hundreds of acts of sexual abuse against those in their care. These stories quickly spun out of control, devolving into more and more outlandish claims until all original evidence was buried and the public was fresh out of trust. Adrian Mack tries to bring us back to reality about McMartin, reminding us of real, concrete abuse cases as well as the depressing evidence of organized pedophile rings. After the panic merged these into an ever-shifting and nigh-all-powerful menace, America has grown cautious around abuse cases that are outlandish or reek of magical elements perhaps we just can't bear it anymore. Either way, the McMartin case beats at the very heart of this shift, and Mac wishes to use the HBO dramatization as a tool through which to analyze it. This film, starring James Woods, is explicitly meant to reassure you that this was all a misunderstanding. There are no creepy Satanists left in the world, and you can always trust your babysitter. Accusers are alcoholics, madmen, or vultures. Defendants are saints, the truly godly ones, and at no point does it mention the blood one single mother found in her son's underwear. Because that's what so many people seem to forget. This didn't start with a crazy story from a random child. This started when Judy Johnson saw blood in her son's diaper, went to the pediatrician, and the pediatrician called the cops. An investigation was launched. Seven people were arrested, including Virginia McMartin, the daycare's owner, her daughter Peggy McMartin Buckley, and her grandchildren Peggy and Ray. Then the Children's Institute Incorporated got involved. Helmed by social worker Key McFarlane, the CII claims they identified 400 victims at McMartin. In the modern era, we understand this to be inflated, grossly so, and there are accusations of CII manipulating the children they interviewed. Desperate for new content, mass media zeroed in on the most bizarre claims that CII presented, namely that the abuse had been part of satanic rituals and that the children had been forced into pornography. Here, the case's connection to the satanic panic was cemented once and for all. The nation was in a frenzy. As detailed earlier, daycares had become suspect by the rise of second wave feminism, and here was one run by a woman that still resulted in the molestation of defenseless toddlers. But outrage does not a guilty verdict make. While parents and zealots howled for blood and $15 million was flushed into the trial, after seven years, the whole thing fell apart. Charges were dropped against five of the defendants, and the remaining two were either acquitted or left in peace after a hung jury. Take a moment, if you can, to recall what it felt like when the judge at Casey Anthony's trial looked up from the written verdict and pronounced her not guilty. <laughs> Now imagine that instead of one murder she definitely committed, it was 400. Maybe now you can understand why the public lost their collective mind. All that anger turned to new targets. If the McMartins were never guilty, time to blame this panic and this trauma on someone else. And now a new story was being penned, and it's the one that beat out all the rest Michael Snedecker wrote a seminal book called Satan's Silence, Ritual Abuse and the Making of a Modern American Witch Hunt. This tome is one of the most frequently cited sources on the case's Wikipedia page, despite the fact that Snedecker's entire career is built on accusing abuse victims of lying and dismissing the ill effects of sexual trauma. The Abuse of Innocence, the McMartin Preschool Trial by Paul and Shirley Eberell, is much the same. Dismissing the sexual abuse claims is unequivocally false. This becomes troubling when you discover that they used to publish an intensely racist magazine that was packed with sexualized stories of child molestation and photos of models who were likely underage. But this narrative was popular, likely because it was reassuring. And now nobody wants to bother with telling the truth from the lies, especially when profit is on the line and awards season is coming up. Mm-hmm. Brings us back to indictment, which was, produced by, which was produced by Oliver Stone and written by a guy called Abby Mann. Where that becomes problematic is the fact that Mann never doubted the innocence of the McMartins and offered his service as an investigator during the trial and bought the life rights of those involved before the trial started and may have gotten an assistant prosecutor to leave the case via backroom dealings and his interference may have actually contributed to the case ending with a whimper and no convictions. While elevating the defendants, the film in question demonizes their accusers. Judy Johnson died tragically young, likely of alcohol poisoning, and the film portrays her mental health struggles as being the root cause of her hysterical accusations. She's even labeled a schizophrenic, as if the children of the mentally ill are somehow exempt from molestation. Or maybe those cases just aren't worth listening to, hmm? Besides the character assassination of a woman struggling with more metaphorical demons, the film decides to take all the actual evidence from McMartin and just put it, like, right in the trash. Many scoff at the children's claims of secret tunnels under the daycare. Few know that the tunnels were actually found. Filled in, sure, but there. And one of the physical evidence on the children themselves, more than one kid from the daycare turned up signs of genital trauma. That does not come from nowhere. But like Tipper Gore, man's take on the situation informs our view to this very day. While movies like Indictment influence pop culture, groups like the False History Syndrome Foundation set their sights on academia. Formed in 1992, I will quote their website in order to acclimate you to their mission. Document and study the problem of families that were being shattered when adult children suddenly claimed to have recovered repressed memories of childhood sexual abuse. False memory syndrome, according to them, is what it says on the tin. You remember shit that never happened. This diagnosis, by the way, appears nowhere in any edition of the DSM, but sounds official and can be a powerful persuasive tool to those unfamiliar with the art of psychiatry. FHSF, False History Syndrome Foundation, goes in hard on the idea of malicious therapists and crafty social workers deliberately leading impressionable people into having fake memories. Their board of directors is not exclusively psychiatrists, psychologists, and real victims like a sane person might expect. Nope. Got a magician and two of the bastards behind MKUltra, though. (laughs) (laughs) And you want the real kicker? You want the thing that'll really stick in your teeth? The False History Syndrome Foundation was founded by Pamela and Peter Fried after their adult child came forward claiming they sexually abused her.
2: So they immediately founded an organization to prove that, to to say that, no, that never happened.
0: You know why I said it's going to be the one that sticks in your teeth? Yeah. Like. No, that, that,
2: my brain caught on that like a loose nail.
0: I thought these people were respectable until I read this article. FYI. Now I don't trust shit they have to say anymore. And that leads us into our next discussion question. This section seems like a great crash course in what happens when entertainment is prioritized over good information. So I ask you, fellow podcast people, none of whom are Ozzy Osbourne as far as I know, how do we navigate the line between being engaging and being responsible, particularly when it comes to grislier topics like child abuse?
3: yeah unfortunately, I don't think there is a way to navigate it because it's always going to be the most outrageous and most outlandish stuff that gets the most popularity as you you know, and especially during that time all that stuff was going down, what did that have to do with Satan? Right Nothing like that just got thrown in there. Yeah, exactly nothing. It's completely evil and horrible what happened, and but that has nothing to do with Satan. But to throw it into something and just lump it into just, oh, it's satanic panic, blah, blah, blah. It's false, uh, false history. It's this, it's that. It's what the fuck is wrong with you
0: people? Yep. Yeah. um That the, the, the ritual abuse claims, if I am remembering this timeline, timeline correctly, those emerged because of Key McFarlane and the interviews she was conducting with the children, all of which are deemed inadmissible because they're bad interviews.
2: Yeah. Uh, and I, I can't. I can't get away from this this thought. I mean, I know I've said this already on this episode, but uh, that, you know, if if there was some, you know, there are predators out there. There are evil people out there, uh, and I can only imagine when the panic started up, you know, the thought must have crossed some of their minds of like, wait, especially like towards the end of the panic, right, where people are starting to just disbelieve a uh, wholesale any sort of these strange claims Just saying, oh, if I throw on a robe and I chant some gobbledygook, I can do whatever I want to the neighborhood kids and no one will believe them. Like, Mm -hmm. and and I I think like, and I also think that it's possible. I mean, there's been allegations that the CIA even made use of it with MKUltra, that they, you know, dressed up some of what they did to people in satanic guise so that it would become part of the panic and in doing so be completely discredited. Um And I I think that honestly is the greatest tragedy of the panic that I I took away from this book is that we allowed our fear and then our our fear of Satanism and then our fear of uh, being proven wrong to allow us to basically just shove actual trauma under the rug.
0: And, And how much of that do you think was this sensationalist media coverage? Like, do you think they were direct agitators of that phenomenon?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh 100%. I don't think there's been a single social evil or moral panic or uh really uh, it, it, I don't think there is a, the media has ever been separate from those things. I mean, uh tragedy sells. There's a yeah. reason that there's a reason that stories about good people doing good things are called fluff pieces and and yeah. relegated to the back pages. It it the tragedies, the horrors, the things that make us scared, that's what's going to motivate people to buy their papers. And I mean, and this has been true since forever. Uh, I'm, I'm, for example, I mean, we when we were talking about John Keel previously, we talked about yellow journalism way back with the Mothman episode. That's all what the yellow journalism was. It was taking a real life situation and injecting as much possible drama and tension and anxiety into it as possible in basically in order to get people so worked up and afraid that they're hanging on your next word. They're waiting for that next article and they're so that they can hopefully get something that will give them a sense of catharsis or safety because now you have them on the hook. And I think that has been, I mean, that's one of the oldest sales tactics we know of. Mm -hmm. I I think that's largely why the satanic panic happened because if you really look at it, like this book covers the panic from a lot of directions So look at movies, D and D comic books, but all those pieces are pretty like they, – they're not really truly connected to each other through a vein of Satanism. Mm-hmm. They're just things that people projected Satanism onto, and, and and I think that was largely due to the media because they were constructing their narrative from the pieces of society that mainstream uh, America found distasteful.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's like the fact that every few years they start reporting on shark attacks again and lead people to believe that there's a swell in shark attacks. And the numbers have always remained static.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah. Sharks are another uh, victim of the media.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was even worse. post Jaws.
2: Well, and I say that as someone who actively is a little afraid of them.
1: You
3: should be. Like, oh, I'm terrified.
2: Uh, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, you really, should be. really. I think at a core, it's I am afraid of being eaten. I, like, I, I don't care what's eating oh, me. Yeah. Zombies. Uh shark, I don't want to be eaten. And I don't know why that's been a, a a stumbling
3: block in my head. This is
0: why I stay out of the ocean. That is their house. Yeah, fuck the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't go there. It's like a thing in no. a video game where it's like you, like in Borderlands, if you go in certain areas, those turrets immediately murder you. Yeah. I feel like whoever designed Earth was like, "Put all the worst shit in the ocean." so they know they're not supposed to go there. What's a submarine, and why are they building so many of them?
1: <laughs> Thank you, alien overlords. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't think the alien overlords gave us submarines. I think they tried to take the submarines away, and we no, were like, I'm... no, I want to see what's down there.
1: No, I was thanking the alien overlords for the horrors under the sea.
0: Oh, yeah, they put those down there.
3: Especially where we can't reach, where Cthulhu <laughs> is hanging out. We uh, mm-hmm. don't just pop out of nowhere. Yeah,
0: he's just doing like a face mask at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and he's like, "I will go up there when I no longer have a tension headache."
1: <laughs>
0: exactly. Um uh,
1: so let's see. So, I, I to to your to your question, um, how do we navigate the line between being engaged and being responsible? I think it's. T- I, th- I mean, it's a tough line, right? But the reality is this, and it's just, it doesn't matter what the topic is. And this, the reality, in my opinion, of course, um, you have to. No matter what media outlet that you you watch or listen to, you have to do your own research, and not just with things like this. Though it is imperative in my opinion, especially like, like if you have a kid that's super into metal and you think that metal music is satanic and because it was, you know, you, you grew up during this era of the panic and that just hasn't left you for whatever reason. I think it's super important that you as a parent, listen to the music, you take the time, not, and you know, not, don't just listen to it, read the lyrics. Under trying to understand what the message is that the band that the band is sending, because ninety percent of the time it's way more positive than you think it is. Mm -hmm. Like metal music as a whole is about pouring your emotions out in into this into it It is poetic. It is beautiful. It isn't uh, like is some of it violent? Sure but how, but that violence is, it is, if nothing else, it is just letting that aggression out into a, a healthy format. That is what it is. And then as the listener, you are listening to it and it is helping you deal with that same aggression. Like I, I, you know, so like, I think it is important that, that people do their own research into this and try and figure out what it is. What is it that it attracts your child to these things? What, you know, what, whatever. Um, but one thing that we also have to remember is uh when especially when it comes to the topics like child abuse is the media will always always latch onto that and will blow it out of proportion no matter what. They will they will take the worst side of it and make that the main story no matter what because that sells more than anything else, especially oh, yeah. if it is a white girl. Yes. Like The most dead. Yeah, it is unbelievable how much that that, you know that will that will sell. And what does the media want? They want nowadays. They want clicks, right? Or they they want views. They want clicks, and that's how they're going to get it is with the headlines that will get people to click into their uh, into their story, whatever it is. So I think we have to find kind of fine tune how we, uh, approach all of these topics. Like, uh, for example, uh, when I was doing my political show, my 10 episode political show that I did, um, I didn't just watch CNN or NBC or any of the, the, the left leaning media outlets. I actually watched, watched Fox far more than I, than I watched, uh, the, the more liberal side because I didn't need a liberal opinion I, needed, you had a liberal I, I had a liberal opinion. I, I had uh, a liberal opinion. You are a
3: liberal opinion.
1: I'm. No, I'm not a liberal. I'm far more left than that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I call myself a socialist, but that's probably not even accurate anymore. But um, uh, I, it's, I think it's important that we understand both sides of everything, um, which is why it's good for us all of us to have read a book like this, right? Because now we're seeing, we see kind of both sides, the history of it all. But I, I, I just think it's super important that we don't just listen to the media and take it for what they say, but rather we, ha- we, we, li- we listen to it and we understand that what they're doing is trying to sell us a story. And if we are interested and we want to learn more, that we will then go out and do our own research and formulate our own opinion we don't just take what Tucker Carlson says and roll with it, you know, especially because, you know, and people do with him specifically. And he's been proven in a court of law to be a joke.
0: Um, so like my pers- my personal take on this is as, as, as has been brought up many times in the show and many times on this episode more than it has in the entirety of the show. I think I am the true crime person. And some of the true crime that I watch is has high journalistic standards and is very empathetic to the victims and is focusing on the impact of the community and the trial process and what it takes to actually get someone convicted after a terrible crime is committed. Some of the true crime that I consume actively makes me a worse person. Um, and... This is a question that this this question of, like, how do you walk between being entertaining and just being informative? That is kind of at the heart of the moral struggle of being a true crime person of it's like, should I be consuming this? Is this for me to know? And so even though I'm the one who asked this question, I don't have a proper answer to this because it starts getting into it starts tr- straying into the ter- into the territory of questioning the morality of this. I I hesitate to even call it a hobby because that feels so diminishing to, to 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 these facts that I am consuming. But this this act, like it 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 starts to question the morality of this thing I do, of this thing that I consume as entertainment, and they're. Like you know, there are times where I'm halfway through a last last podcast on the on on the left episode, and I'm like, I can't fucking listen to this, and like mm-hmm. I turn it off. And I, but at the same time, people do not control what they find entertaining, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be very crass and very disrespectful right now t- to some people. Gary Lauer is dead. Me refusing to consume media about Ricky Casso and about what led to that event is not going to make Gary Lauer less dead mm-hmm. but I am a therapist I am I am going in th- not to hide behind this but I'm trying to become a therapist and if consuming this junky voyeuristic true crime in some way shape or form leads me to understanding disaffected teen anger in a way where I can maybe help steer someone away from stabbing their friend to death over drugs.
1: Then hashtag worth it. Well, I mean, I, I also think... At hashtag the, why not? At,
0: right.
2: I also think at the end of the day, um, uh, things fester in darkness. Yeah. And, and the fact of the matter is, is uh, horrible, brutal, evil things happen in our world daily. Yeah. And I think that uh honestly I think that there is a significant portion. I think actually a significant portion of the population who were pushing the panic, who were taking part in the panic actively are the same people who would rather have all of those evils pushed into a closet. Yes. They don't want to think about them, they don't want to consider them because it it makes them feel things that they're uncomfortable with. But I mean, I I, lo- I love horror. I know we I think all four of us love horror here. We've talked about it a little bit and Horror, to a degree, to me, it it's meant to make you uncomfortable because it gives you a way of interacting with these evils in the world, um, in, in a safe way. And I think true crime may serve a similar purpose. It it you know we yeah. see these evils are happening, and it's it's natural and okay to want to understand why they happen. I don't think that that is something that uh, should be demonized. That said, if you're like making sweet memes about Casey Anthony's vagina. You know, maybe you should chill out a little bit,
0: but it's one of those things where there's definitely like a a spectrum Mm -hmm. of the people. And like, this is like, I'm, I'm not super involved with the online true crime community. I was more when I was younger and there was definitely even within the community, a bit of an us versus them hostile hostility of like, no, 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 no. We're doing this correctly. I don't know what those weirdos over there are doing. We're doing this correctly. And I'm trying to break out of that mentality because I don't think I should ever exempt myself from examining my own behaviors. But there and it's 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 almost like the obscenity trials. It's like you kind of know it when you see it of like the people who are a little too into some of the details of it's like you're getting something out of this that I'm not. And it's making me uncomfortable.
2: The guy who's playing pocket hockey while reading about Richard Ramirez. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I know who you're talking about. Like, I've met, a- I've, I've, I will, I have not met in person people like that. I have, let's say, interacted in the digital sphere with individuals who gave me that vibe. And there mm-hmm.
0: are, there are mass shooter fangirls. Like, that, that is a, oh, yeah. that is a, that is a type of person. And I sometimes feel weird about how adamantly I want to separate myself from them because, again, it starts to feel like I'm hiding behind something. But at the same time, again, they are engaging with this in a way that I don't understand that makes me deeply uncomfortable.
1: I think there's a difference. Oh, go ahead, Chris.
3: I was going to say, when I that, but look at look at Ted Bundy, how many women said, mm-hmm. oh, you couldn't have done that because he's attractive.
0: Right. Oh, absolutely! Uh, Carol Ann Boone married the man and had his yeah. child, like his
3: baby.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, I, that I think there's girl.
1: a difference between being interested in something for the reason of it's interesting, right? Because in a way, true crime and crime in general is interesting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly surprised that I'm not interested in it more just because of how interested I am in like the legal system and things like that and how they are related. And
2: social deviance in all forms is always interesting.
1: Yeah. And I, and that's the same kind of attraction that horror brings. Uh, the difference is in my opinion, horror is telling life stories in an extreme way. It's telling extreme stories in an extreme way. And, you know, in some, sometimes when it's like done by somebody like a company, like a 24, it turns out to be real, real pretty too but that's not the point. The, the point that I was trying to make is there's a difference between being a fan of something and being interested in the, uh, the culture around it uh, and then being obsessive and um, almost in love and enthralled with it to the point where you're fanning over something like murder. And that's, that's not okay. Like, well, it, it, it there's, a, there's, a, there's a line that needs to be drawn there like, You shouldn't ever be a fan of a murderer.
2: Well, it kind of reminds me of something. uh, Alan Moore. He's the one who wrote Watchmen, correct? Yes. Okay. It reminds me of something he was talking about where he wrote, he wrote the character of Rorschach to be basically scum, to be this complete psychopath. You're, you're supposed to see as a monster. um, And yet, and when people start, when, you know, there was a a significant portion of people who started going, Rorschach is so awesome, he's me. Alan Moore was going, no, don't do that. And I think that's the line. When you are going, when you cross the line from Ted Bundy is a monster to Ted Bundy is my role model, that's the line in my mind, uh, is when you stop acknowledging that what they did is horrible. Like it, it, when that becomes forgiven in your brain or, or worse, it becomes the best thing about them.
1: Yeah. If that's
2: you, when you need to take a big step back.
1: If you ever justify what, the, what somebody like that did in your own mind to rationalize why you feel, you know, why you feel this connection, you should probably go to a therapist.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Go to therapy.
0: Not, not with me. That's the end
2: of the episode.
0: <laughs> I can't, I can't be your therapist if you listen to this podcast. It becomes a whole thing.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Are we ready for section three?
3: I just want to say one more thing. About yeah, me. go ahead. Yeah, I also, I mean, it's not. I, I don't want to throw it all in the media because uh, humankind, us people, we also have like a general curiosity for the macabre. Like how many oh, yeah. times have we seen a car accident? We're like, oh, I'm staring at this way too long. But what happened? Or yeah. even look at like. Yeah like the the controversy of faces of death. Mm-hmm. Like those were banned, but yeah, you could get your hands on them so easily. Yeah. Granted, it turned out to be all fake and everything. Except I think there's maybe one or two clips in there that are real, but like all that stuff. It's like, we all have a general curiosity for that. But it, again, that's where the line is drawn where you have a general curiosity and you're like, Oh, that guy's head exploded. Oh, that's great. I'm gonna watch this over and over again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna play with myself for a while. That's <laughs> yeah. I agree. That's where the line is. Yeah. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. Pocket hockey
2: is the line. <laughs> yeah.
0: One of uh one of the the darkest moments in my middle school years was I accidentally ended up on I, I don't know if it was actually the deep web, but I fell down a, a a Russian nesting doll hole of links and I ended up on a gore fetish website when I was like 12 years old. Uh Oh, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Uh, (laughs) Just the constant sadness that lives inside me. And all those
2: (laughs) organs in my fridge.
0: I those aren't me. I'm scared now. God damn it, Jimenez! Stop storing your murder organs in our freezer. (laughs) We don't have room in there. We don't have
4: room either. Just,
1: I can't get my veggie hot dogs in the freezer anymore. I what?
2: I just, just, I'm just picturing getting up in the morning, opening the freezer, and be like, "Hmm, I don't remember putting heads in here." (laughs) Oh well, grab my Egos and go about my day.
0: You're fucking busy.
2: I am too busy to deal with severed hooker heads.
0: <laughs> Should we move on to Dungeons and Dragons? Please,
1: yes. <laughs> oh, oh yes, please.
0: All right. So, section three is entitled Nerd Shit in All Caps. And we begin with Gavin Battley's essay Dicing with the Devil, all about Dungeons and Dragons, which I'm not explaining to you. If you don't know what it is, somehow, please, for the love of God, just look it up. Anyway, we're gonna jump right into what the panic advocates thought of Dungeons Dragons. They hated it. They fucking hated it.
1: Naturally. Naturally.
0: The first big boom of D&D's popularity coincided with the rise of America's hyper-conservatism, and under the Reagan administration, the moralistic right was on the hunt for any threats to their way of life. D&D's use of demons, violence, magic, and non-Christian gods all made it a gigantic and easy target for the panicky parent that lives inside all of us. Dr. Gary North, a PhD holder who believes that magic is an ongoing threat to America and links the occult with liberalism, declared D&D to be the most effective introduction to occult thinking he's ever seen. This is no game, he thundered. Underneath the academic veneer, North is an evangelical extremist calling for a return to biblical punishment for all the icky gays and ghoulish abortionists.
1: What's funny here is he's actually kind of right, but also really wrong at the same time. Because D&D has a huge foundation in the occult, and it's very accurate in its histories of the occult, but he's just wrong about how it was used.
2: Uh, I mean, and also, there are games that already that go even much further, like uh, White Wolf's Mage, Mage the Awakening. Oh, God, oh, yeah. God, whoever, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Whoever wrote that game is a genuine occultist, because oh, yes. there is so much shit in there that is directly ripped from, like, uh, Hermeticism and Gnosticism. It's crazy.
0: The entire cycle of, the entire concept of the cycle in Mage the Awakening, as far as I can tell, is ripped straight from the from Hindu mysticism. Yeah,
2: no, absolutely. <laughs> anyway...
0: He wasn't alone. One Christian personality, William Shobolin, claimed that back when he was an evil witch, he was the game's official occult advisor. But I was just on the Ouija board with Gary Gygax, and he (laughs) said he's never met this guy, so IDK, it's pretty sus. (laughs) But then James Dallas Egbert went missing. A young, troubled student of MSU, struggling with his sexuality and with academic pressures, had turned to RPGs to cope. Hoping for some privacy, he eventually fled into the tunnels beneath his school, where he could self-harm in peace. The private investigator who recovered him for his parents asserted that James had lost touch with reality and told the press that he had retreated to the tunnels to act out his gaming fantasies. A year after he was found, Egbert took his own life. Like the McMartin case, movies and novels took his private agony and used it for ratings— painting his escapist hobby as an exacerbator of his mental illness, effectively blaming the dice for his tragic death. In 1980, shortly after Egbert was laid to rest, preacher Albert James Cotter delivered a truly bizarre rant about RPGs, warning parents that their children would lose touch with reality, grow reliant on magic, would forsake God for the dice, and that their successes on the game board would infect them with pride.
1: Yeah, that's kind of true, too. I
2: mean, I have definitely prayed to the dice a number of times in the middle of rolling them. Yes, Uh, the dice gods
1: are real, people. Actually, I don't know if it's praying so much
0: as begging (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I, I will admit our tendency in our LARP group to refer to the storyteller as God is not a great look in this context. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> you know, I didn't think about that, but you're right. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, oh my God, are we the problem?
0: I, we're, ju- we're doing mild heresy.
2: No, we're the offspring of the problem. Oh, okay. That that makes me feel better.
0: I, I mean, I I am a, I am literally a third generation D&D gamer and larper, so like they are kind of right about the whole corrupting nice. the youth thing.
1: You'd be a second oh You'd be second generation. You said third.
0: Okay, I meant second generation. Uh but yeah, um Jimenez, uh, the very first game of Werewolf the Apocalypse ever premiered at Gen Con and my parents were there and participated in it.
3: That's fucking awesome.
1: I I know, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Anyway, clumsily, Preacher Cotter attempted to twist Bible verses from thousands of years ago into topical decrees, claiming that, that Jesus and Moses and God himself were strictly into wholesome games like Monopoly and tax evasion. <laughs> 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 <What>?
3: <laughs> <laughs> hungry, hungry headphones. You,
2: you were in a mood when you wrote this. <laughs> Fucking on a roll. Oh, my God.
1: Oh, that was good.
0: Much like Tipper Gore's PMRC, one of D&D's biggest enemies was a group founded by a struggling parent. Patricia Pulling founded Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, henceforth called bad, after her son Irving tragically took his own life. For reasons that are not fully clear, Pulling believed it was a curse cast on him during a D&D session that really killed her son. Irving's peers disagreed. Overwhelmed with grief, Patricia's action group tried to eradicate the game wherever they could find it, telling every parent who would listen that their depressed children were next. Conveniently, or perhaps just sadly, polling failed to mention her son's history of animal abuse and his lifelong social isolation. Her story was moving, and more importantly, it was marketable. Believing that satanic spirits lurked in every rule book, parents grabbed torches and went hunting, driving the hobby out of their own basements, out of community centers, out of after-school clubs. Much like heavy metal, association with RPGs became evidence of wrongdoing all on its own. The cycle repeated further as alienated kids flocked to the taboo game, which reinforced their parents' fears that Gary Gygax had stolen their darling babies. Pulling may have been a driving force in this, or at least part of it. Using the hysteria techniques she'd perfected on parents, she wormed her way into the inner circles of police departments and fed the misinformation about the dangers of RPGs. Once thoroughly ensconced, she'd spin right around and use the arrests those same cops made as evidence of her assertions. The magic of D&D was one of the main things its detractors latched onto, claiming that the fake magic was a gateway drug to real occult practices and real occult practices will obviously lead to murders and suicide and voting third party. Amusingly enough, D&D is not inspired by true occultism. Its magic bears little to no resemblance to the ritual magic of Thelema, nor the nature-based Mischief and Boon style of witchcraft. In fact, Jack Vance's Dying Earth novels were the fertile soil that D&D grew in, not the long-lost demon-summoning rites of our more creative ancestors. At the tail end of the 1980s, D&D's parent company finally made a statement. Gary Gygax was gone at this point, and the company tiredly declared that they had bent over backwards in the name of comforting the public. Demons and devils were scrubbed from the game. No Satan here, no siree. But the heyday of beating up on the dice nerds was already petering out. The 80s were ending, and no satanic apocalypse had brought down the sky on our heads. Besides, Magic the Gathering had made it onto the scene, and that overtook D&D as the new baby everyone could be excited about. It's
1: true. And then Wizards of the Coast bought I s- D&D. I yep. spent so much money on cardboard crack. Yep. Same.
0: I was always immune to it. I was busy collecting action figures. Did I wish yeah. I had. Yes.
1: Those, those
2: appreciated better than my cards did.
0: Not mine. I took them out of the box and got them all scratched up.
3: Yeah, you gotta take
0: them out of the box. Yeah, yeah. that was my dad's whole point. If he was like, I don't care how valuable those old Star Trek toys I found on eBay are, I'm opening them and playing with them. (laughs) Yep. But D&D still rules its private corner of the geeky world, spawning hundreds of fan conventions, TV shows, movies, books, and an entire subculture. Secular and non-Christian players tuned out the noise, Christian players planted their feet and told everybody else to move, and even the cops seemed to wake up from it all. Modern D&D is a much different animal, with more recent editions trying to dismantle the black-and-white morality and occasionally racist coding of certain races, and embracing trans and non-binary characters. Perhaps, the author muses, this politically correct, welcoming facelift is a delayed response to the lies spread about the game in previous decades. Leaving the world of dice and arguing about what the hell Attack of Opportunity even fucking means we skip next door to Eternia, where Joshua Benjamin Graham has authored Masters of the Imagination, fundamentalist readings of the occult cartoons in the 1980s. As we have clearly seen, conservative Americans felt that they had lost control of their culture. If D&D wasn't your thing, or if you didn't know enough about metal to criticize it, or if your kids were too young to do drugs, you had one last brightly colored scapegoat to rage against, those goddamn cartoons. Among these unfairly targeted toy commercials, perhaps the most frequently condemned was He-Man. Despite Mattel's tireless efforts to keep Prince Adam's adventures 100% wholesome, there was still a sizable backlash. Graham points out that the warning signs were present in the title itself. Instead of humbly accepting the rule of Jesus Christ, He-Man sought to master the universe all on his own and had the audacity to scream, I HAVE THE POWER! in every episode. Which, as we all know, is the crime that Galileo was burnt at the stake for. Now, is He-Man one of our grand cultural epics? Probably not. Like most cartoons in the 80s, it was an ad for toys more than anything, but frequently ended episodes with child-friendly PSAs that encourage kids to think through problems, avoid strange adults, and not resort to violence. Were these effective? Also probably no. Marketability trumps depth, particularly when it comes to kids. And yet another fascinating example of these crusading parents being half-right, they rightfully and truthfully called out the cynical tactics of these shows. But instead of zeroing in on the poorly articulated messages or the fact that they primarily existed to give kids a spending addiction, they concluded that the veneer of morality was placed there to cover up satanic roots and lead their children astray. You know what happens next. Bring out the bestsellers! Phil Phillips, a man with a deeply cruel name that might explain his constant rage, authored the book Turmoil in the Toy Box, one of the earliest examples of anti-cartoon literature. In these books, Phillips and his equally opportunistic ilk fill the pages of these formulaic formulaic tomes with unprovable anecdotes about the ill effects of cartoons, their tie-in toys, and games. They then leap from anecdotes to lies, In a move that is tried and true by the evangelical right, Phillips sulkily claims that Christians are marginalized on TV, portrayed as unintelligent and unfairly othered by mainstream programming. When not bemoaning their own imagined oppression, these authors try to sound reasonable by citing the violence of these cartoons as an inarguable problem, borrowing pages from the books of secular public health action groups. Never mind the fact that kids' cartoons from the 80s are by and large bloodless and empty of death. And never mind the fact that the evidence for imitatable violence is shaky at best. None of that stacked up to the core point. These books confirmed what parents already thought and gave them leave to go ape shit. Many Christians and Americans in general feared television. They worried it would make their children illiterate. It hasn't. That it would rob them of their irrefutable authority. Good. And that it would drown out the holy words of God in the Bible thanks Satan for televangelists or I wouldn't have a snide comment to make here. <laughs> as usual, the screaming parents got their way. U.S. Surgeon General, remember this dude? Launched an investigation into the evils of the talking future box, desperate to prove that it was the root of all American violence. And as we learned from twin telepathy, nothing fucks up an experiment more than thinking you know the answer going in. Ultimately, no causal relationship emerged and the Surgeon General's office was forced to concede that, mm, Maybe TV was just a new medium and like fairy tales should be something parents either used as a teaching tool or something they should simply trust their children with. Parents weepily responded that unlike bedtime story, they had no control over what their children watched. Odd, given they're the ones paying for it and also setting literally every other rule their servants, (coughs) offspring, lived (laughs) under. But hey, I guess He-Man really does have the power here.
2: I mean, that is an attractive speedo he wears.
1: S- says the cis straight man.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, can, reco- <laughs> I can
0: recognize
2: an attractive bulge <laughs> and, and maintain my heterosexuality as a 21st century.
0: Besides that, Mr. Surgeon in Charge guy, how could any one parent battle back the united forces of darkness, brainwashing their little one with catchy theme songs and accidental homoeroticism?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why my parents didn't want me to watch shows like He-Man. They thought that they'd make me gay.
0: Fun (laughs) fact, uh, the entire reason that both Batgirl and Batwoman exist as characters is because um, everyone got angry that Robin and Batman were spending so much time together And everyone thought they were Mm -hmm. gay, and DC was so tired of getting yelled at about it that they literally just made up two girl characters to just have hanging around.
1: That's so funny.
4: Yep.
0: (sighs) Ah. Uh, Comic books are stupid, and I love them so much. As, as I think every true
2: comic fan I've ever met has said.
0: Yeah. I, I <laughs> feel like they're more fun when you're like, this is stupid, like the entire time. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Thank you, Jimenez, you understand what I'm talking about. Oh, 100%. Phillips, for his part, was still talking and loudly proclaimed to all of Christendom that children were being conned into inviting in the devil. If they use their imaginations to pretend to have He-Man's powers, he reasoned, perhaps they would draw the attention of real demons, who would then buy their real souls in exchange for real magic, which, you know, let them? It's America, pursuit of happiness, and that demon is a hard-working entrepreneur, sir. Like most controversies before it, the He-Man debacle died off with an embarrassed whimper. The cartoon remained popular, and there is still no study concretely linking cartoon violence with real-life murder or even real-life shoplifting. These days, a cartoon like Steven Universe or Owl House can be even more overtly occult and anti-authority and barely get a glance. Perhaps girly media is less vulnerable to satanic meddling. Or maybe everybody's just too tired of the fight. Speaking of tired, we're going to move into our next discussion question. Whoa! And here's a real big question for a real little podcast. How do we make sure that children aren't engaging with things that can hurt them? Or do we simply have to accept that sometimes kids will get hurt?
3: Mm. Um, Be a parent. Yeah. There you go.
2: Even that, I, I come back to, I don't think it's possible. Pain and tragedy and difficulties is part of the human experience. And oh, I, unless you sure. want to re- raise a placid cow by keeping them locked in a room 24-7 and never expose them to media. But even that, guess what? That's trauma. That's just part of existing. Pain is a part of our mortal existence here in this world. Um, And, I mean, this whole thing about protecting our kids from D&D or He-Man Personally, it, it regarding the satanic panic, I felt like even if the panic wasn't happening, that was going to happen just because uh, we have a long and storied tradition as a species of fucking hating whatever the kids are doing. And I mean, th- yes. that for me growing up, it was video games. Yep. I can't tell you how many yep. times I was told video games were going to turn me into a bloodthirsty sociopath. Mm-hmm. And hey, at most, I'm a psychopath. So... <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, but, so like, I, I, I just, I think that this was a case where the thing that's always been happening just happened to get a satanic paint job during the, uh, during the panic because everything that scared me had to be rooted in Satan. At, in some way,
0: uh, Nick, when you shared your notes with me, I saw that you put something in there about the fact that in an ancient Greece, they railed against the concept of books or like not yep, ages, like, yeah the, because people would stop memorizing the stories and Later on, when the printing press was invented and books no longer had to be written by hand, there was the same issue of like people were loudly proclaiming that it's like if we can mass print books, they will lose their specialness and they will become worse and make us worse and dumber people.
2: Or I remember and like shortly after that, what you had was uh, kids are spending too much time reading and it's making it so they can't at- interact with the world because they don't talk to anyone. They just read all the time. Like, can you imagine modern parents making that complaint? <laughs> my, my kid is such a delinquent. <laughs> he won't
4: stop reading. Uh, I think one thing here, parents need to accept
1: that they're not, they're never going to be able to shelter their kids from all of life and pain, right? So I think the, 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 the perfect um, medium That is available to all of them is to find shows especially children's cartoons that help prepare them for that and i think you you mentioned the best example in your last paragraph here with steven universe like steven universe has a very feminine uh lean to it right but the lessons that you learn and that a child will learn from watching that show will help prepare them for the world in a way that you, as a parent, likely can't. Um, uh, the mindfulness episode in Steven Universe still sticks with me.
0: It's it was literally designed to teach children how to do basic meditation to fight anxiety. That's literally the purpose of that episode.
1: And if you look at uh, almost every literature nowadays that's talking about how to help improve yourself, it will always talk about mindfulness. Always, because it is so important. And you're saying. The cartoons that are teaching your kids about mindfulness might be because of Satan. Fuck off. You
2: know, it's I mean, uh, also, I mean, Steven Universe, it was never going to be the show that was targeted at me. I ended up watching it because I was quarantining with you two. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I've said I've since bought the box set because I like like you were saying, I like purchasing up cartoons that I would like to show my kids once I have them. Uh, which is why I have a a small little collection of DVDs that I don't watch, but they're there for when I have kids because I believe they will teach good, wholesome lessons and I think that might go back to what Rory was saying earlier with uh you know, do your research know what they're ingesting and I mean and again i I don't think that you can stop them from ingesting scary things or things that will uh, teach them uh probably some problematic behaviors because they're going to have to learn to deal with those things and not be taken in by them Mm. anyway, in order to survive in the world. Uh, Raising someone in ignorance never leads to a painless life.
1: Correct. And I think it's super, I think it's super important. Like I'm, I'm not going to have kids like that's just, it's not in the cards for Jay and I, and that's completely fine. So take my opinion on all this with a grain of salt and that's also fine. But like my parents tried very hard to, control what I ingested. Um, you know, I didn't outside of, like I didn't I wasn't allowed to watch Cartoon Network because shows like Ed Ed and Eddie were, were bad. they my parents didn't like them, so therefore I wasn't allowed to watch them. I, I was a Nickelodeon kid. You know, I watched all the Nickelodeon shows. Those are great. Um and I would show those to my kids if I had them, a lot of the ones that I grew up on. But because I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of those things, I ended up seeking it out anyway. Because I was curious I wanted to know why I wasn't allowed to watch these things. And then I got hooked on things like horror because none of my family likes horror. Um, And I watched it and I was enthralled with it, but then was almost felt like I should be ashamed of that because it's wrong and it's dark and it's like, or you could try to understand your, your kid is invested and interested in these things and maybe try to find some common ground or if you don't like it, then that's fine. Just let your kid enjoy the things that is making them happy, especially if it doesn't hurt them. Um, but I, 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 I think ultimately, kids are going to get like you, you, kids are going to get hurt. You can't go through life ever without feeling some kind of pain. What you can do as a parent is prepare them for that pain, and there are so many things out there that are going to help with that. You know, it's like, I, I have this weird opinion and I, I know it's not shared by a lot of people, but once you hit like, like 12, I think every kid should just start going to therapy, like just to start prepping them for dealing with all of that, like go to therapy to have somebody who's not your parents to talk to about the things that you are at this point, never going to talk to your parents about. And you accept like, as a parent, I would accept that. I'd be like, I know you're not going to talk to me about these things. I want you to, and it's fine that you don't want to, but I do want you to talk to somebody about them. So let's talk to a professional. You know, make it so it's not a bad thing. This is great. It's good for you. It's good for all of us. You know.
2: Well, I mean, and I think that's a good point because I mean, like you said, they're going to ingest this material anyway. Whatever you find offensive, they will ingest it. And if they don't have the tools to uh, internal, they don't have the tools to kind of view that. And break it down and, I don't know, internalize it in a healthy and productive way, then you're going to get, you know, you're going to get those kids who are burning ants with a magnifying glass.
1: Well, or, or on the other side, and, and you know, I, I, I don't like using myself as an example, but in this situation, I think I'm a great example here. Uh, I didn't have the tools because I was effectively taught to uh, hamper down the, the like all of that, right? Either hide it away or don't show it. And what happened? I became an addict. You know, I I I sought out these things, and then I didn't know how to deal with everything that was happening around me. So what did I what did I do? I sought after the same things that the people in the music scene or whatever else were all doing too to help deal with their pain, and therefore I ended up doing drugs and partying and you know all all of the things that I should have avoided. You know, but that's just the, that's just that's kind of the nature of what happens when you you. Just let shit lie, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's kind of one thing I'm thankful of. You know, I said earlier, I was largely just allowed to read whatever. I mean, my uh, my mom usually would be pretty would be a little more cautious if I was like ingesting a film like a horror movie with uh, other kids because she didn't want other parents to be calling her. But I mean, if it, I was on my own, I I watched tons of really grotesque horror movies. I read a lot of uh, a lot of books that featured things like sex and violence. And through those, I, I, I believe I developed a kind of a healthy way of not only dealing with those with those topics or darker topics when I encountered them in my real life. But I mean, it also gave me a, a better view, a better view of what the world could have, what could happen in the world out there. And I mean, when I started getting access to the news, oh boy, I'm glad I had that prep work, especially in the modern day when, I mean, we, uh, especially every generation that's coming in has more and more access to every piece of information and every event that ever happens anywhere in the world. And that's immensely overwhelming I mean, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be, you know, going around 12, 13 year old and just beginning to kind of get aware of the larger world around you and looking out and seeing this horror show that's presented by the media. It would break you. It would shatter minds. And I'm convinced that that's happening with some people.
1: Probably why 90 percent of the kids in this world have anxiety disorders now.
0: That was that was my experience. I have a vivid memory of being 11 years old and i hadn't put a word to it yet but i already knew i was queer on some Mm -hmm. level and watching a news story of a max mass execution of homosexuals in iraq Mm -hmm. like i have a vivid memory of that and that's one of those things where it's like you know people were getting on my parents case about the horror movies they let me watch and it's like maybe that's the thing they should have been keeping me away from
2: yeah i mean Fiction innate. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is exploitative fiction.
1: Oh,
4: yeah,
2: absolutely. There's a great, great essay in this book about uh, some of the exploitative satanic erotica that came out around this period by this book. Uh yeah, it's a fantastic book. If yeah. you can find a copy, buy it. It's hard to find right now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, eBay is about the best option you're going to get because we're we're all convinced that Nick bought the last one off Amazon.
2: I I am convinced as well. That's about right. It said they had one left. I bought it, and then it was no longer on Amazon.
0: <laughs> uh, Chris, you you made the you made the the wonderful statement of be a parent. Would you Would you grace yes. me with the privilege of elaborating on that?
3: <laughs> yes. Yes. No problem. So. I'm just going to go from how I was raised. And that was like, I didn't really have limitations on what I could read, what I could watch, anything like that. But what it came to is anything that I was interested in or did watch, my parents would check out ahead of time. And if it was like, okay, this is a little too much. Let's, you know, let's wait till you're a little bit older. And then they would sit down and explain like, look, this is a little too violent for you at this age. Just chill out. And I was fine with that. I think, Parents nowadays rely too much on TV and, and Internet to raise their children. For
4: mm-hmm. it. Because
3: mm-hmm. I'm just just from my life experience, I have cousins that, you know, when their kids are out of hand, they just here's your tablet. Have fun. Yeah. They don't want to deal with it. And it's like, no, you can't do that because who knows what they're looking at? Who knows what they're watching? It's true. Uh, you know, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm a little older than most of you. So I, you know, I have, I have no idea what Steven Universe is. So excuse uh. me, but so I grew up on like the real Ghostbusters and Sonic the Hedgehog and, and Mighty Max and stuff like that. Like Mighty Max had a huge like a cult.
0: I am so thrilled you said Mighty Max because that was my first cartoon. My parents literally yes. were showing me Mighty Max when I was a literal toddler. <laughs> like,
3: so yeah, but like Mighty Max like has a it's got demons and monsters and stuff and like. My parents sat me down, and you know, they're not—they aren't—they were never religious. They—they—they um, they, they grew up both in religious households, but they both said, like, if that's something you want to do, you can go ahead and discover that on your own. And I and I did dabble in religion for a little while, and that's more or less why I'm agnostic right now. But um, that's a whole other story. Hmm. Uh, something like demons and all that. They sat down and they said, like, these may or may not exist. We don't know, but you know, if you're a good person, if you're a good child, you won't have to worry about stuff like that. And that was fine with me. Like, uh, I still as a horror fan, I still never seen The Exorcist all the way through. I think I've seen the whole movie in chunks.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: But even like that's one of the movies that will still terrify me to this day. And uh that was one of those films that where they were like, no, this is just a little too much. And I think if if parents were a little more proactive, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have the the carings nowadays, I guess you could say. Yeah. You're not
1: wrong. No, it goes back to like a lot of like what I was saying earlier too. Like if you know that this is something they're interested in, ingest it yourself. Find out what you know, like see see what's going on in this. Is it do, do yeah. you do you deem this appropriate? Can the can your child handle this? Like
2: well, and that's a big thing too is because not all kids are made made the, made of the same stuff. Right. I mean, they I I can think of a of a, one particular birthday party I had uh, as a kid where I wanted to watch, you know, I had friends over and I wanted to watch uh, horror movies. And halfway through, I don't even remember what movie it was. I think it was the first scream movie. Uh, halfway through that, one of my friends just started crying and went home because he could not handle it. I mean, the rest of us were fine, but and obviously you can't really control when that's going to happen. The kid went to a party. He saw something he wasn't ready for. But I, I mean, I think that that illustrates the fact that you could have one kid who can ingest this material and uh responsibly ingest it and contextualize it and understand what they're actually seeing. And then you'll have kids who can't. And that's mm-hmm. that's perfectly fine. I mean, existence is on a spectrum, period.
1: Yeah, Uh I mean, Mars Attacks scared me as a kid, and that's a comedy. That's because Mars Attacks is fucking terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I had a reoccurring nightmare for like 10 years about that movie.
2: No, I I legitimately think that is a frightening movie. Uh, There is something really uncanny valley about not just the aliens, everything. Every single shot in the film is a little uncanny valley. It didn't bother me yeah that makes sense you're a living cartoon character
0: oh no i i love the movie i love it i love it now yeah i
1: love it now uh i i do i honestly i love the movie now but when i saw it like when it first came out and all that i was like i was probably just too young i i I don't know but uh it scared the ever living the fuck out of me
2: I, i remember i was haunted by the scene where the one kills the president by planting a flag in his chest
1: uh the one that yeah. got me was the the older brother or whatever when he was on the hill and uh, they shot him with the gun. He turned or the holding the flag and he turned into the skeleton. Yeah. That was the, that was the scene <laughs> that got me in the reoccurring, like part of the reoccurring nightmare. That was the one. I still remember it vividly. That's how, I mean, like, that's, wow. how, that's how much it was. Good to know Rory's afraid of spooky bones. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, but that was the scene. That's all I'm saying. Don't try and don't, you know what? Fuck you, Nick.
0: So- just just, just, as a, just, as a funny little statement about my own experience, my parents were more lax than most parents uh, that I knew were about, like, not even just what I could do, not even just what I could read and watch, but, like, they would let me take walks at night by the time I was, like, 12, and all the other parents were like, you let Jay walk around the neighborhood by himself, and they're like, he knows where the house is. Like <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> he takes the dog. What's the problem? He's like, got
1: two feet and a heartbeat. And, yeah, and, and a big ass dog. And well, like a beagle, but no, that was no, that, that was been, Baxter, yeah, Baxter that I took with oh, me. Okay, so yeah, golden, golden. retriever, yeah. Yeah, the
0: golden retriever that was much more muscular than most golden retrievers are supposed to be for some odd reason. Um, but and then they gave up controlling what I watched uh, when they came home from like leaving me by myself in the late afternoon. They're like, what'd you do, Jay? And I'm like, watch The Human Centipede. And they're like, I'm sorry, you did what? And it's like, it was on, the, it was on Netflix. And they're like, oh, so we have no control over any of this anymore, do me? And I basically went, no, you don't. Like, they let me have a computer in my room. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah, so I,
2: I wish explains your crippling porn addiction.
1: It's not crippling or an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> you call you called Jay out on something that's one, maybe or maybe not true, I'm not going to say.
0: God fucking damn it! What is happening?
1: <laughs> but, but you you stunned Jay into silence. Thank God for Chris here. <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: god I am, uh, My brain is bacon right now It's yeah. sizzling
0: It was like one of those moments where I was like I, The one eye of yours that I can see in our current position You said it And I saw you process what you said After it <laughs> left your mouth And you, were, you weren't guilty You were just like, freeze in place His vision is based on movement Let's <laughs> ascertain how he's going to take this Before I say anything else <laughs>
2: Correct Correct Yes, I, I, I act at all times as if I'm living with dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, that's accurate.
0: Can we move on to our final section?
2: Yeah, I, I can stop <laughs> insulting you. No, you For can. now.
0: <laughs> so section four is entitled, Frauds! There's a reason for that. Because <laughs> we're talking about frauds.
1: Thank you. I got it.
0: You know, for all the talk of the Morning Star being the Prince of Lies, his opponents seem to have a real shaky relationship with the truth. Uh. Let's start with a man who made millions off his own lies, Mike Warnke, dubbed by many as the accidental architect of the satanic panic. In his riveting and at times deeply personal essay, Confessions of a Creature Feature Preacher, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying About Satanism and Love Mike Warnke.
1: Wow, I hate that title. I love the essay. Yeah. That was
2: one of the best essays in the book, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it was Amazing. great. I
0: just
1: hate that title.
0: Former Warnke superfan David Canfield opens by saying he could spend the rest of his life trying to explain the full picture of the panic and Warnke's role in it and still come up short. In 1973, lifelong dork Mike Warnke published an autobiography called The Satan Seller. In this thing that I technically have to call a book... Warnke claims that he spent his childhood terrorizing every adult around him before falling in with a satanic coven when he went to community college. Lured in by promises of drugs and sex, Warnke soon began to claw his way up Jacob's Ladder. Soon, he was the Grand High Priest of Awesomeness, <laughs> over a covenant of 1,500 people in California. As said Grand High Whatever of Who Cares, Warnke confidently tells us tales of his participation in satanic ritual abuse. He and his minions summoned forth demons, kidnapped victims to be raped, tortured, and sacrificed. He claimed he had long bleached hair, a sure sign of the demonic, and six-inch nails, practical for a man trying to run a cult, I think, <laughs> and, suffered, and had suffered multiple stab and gunshot wounds, all while battling an addiction to every drug known to man, and several, I assume, known only to beavers and space aliens. Eventually, Warren Key became too evil for hell, like Stingy Jack, pour one out for the OG, and his coven tried to assassinate him with a heroin overdose, fleeing <laughs> the very monsters he created, Warnke joined the Navy, where two pure-hearted Christian sailors led him back to Christ and saved his soul from the devil. Born again, Warnke was released from service early so he could go into ministry work with his Mobile Museum of the Occult, a.k.a. the Witchmobile. That's literally what it's called, people. Warnke toured the country, giving lectures on satanic ritual abuse disguised as Christian comedy acts. His message was one of hope. I beat the devil, and so can you. Together, we will save America. As I mentioned above, Canfield spent his teens and his young adulthood as a Warnkey fan, playing his albums on repeat and trying to get his friends in on the craze. He not only attended live shows, but worked behind the scenes on one. With a very frank attitude about his teenage self, Canfield describes his bumbling attempts to socialize with the man while driving him to the venue. Hero worship is the only word we can use here. Young David Canfield, in the end, wanted to be like this powerful Christian success story. Too bad pretty much every story Mike ever told was a giant crock of shit. Firstly, the timeline is weird. Everything he described going through would have had to take place in 18 months, and I personally don't think hell promotes that fast. Uh. Secondly, he converted to Christianity while still in college, and was in fact engaged to a sweet-tempered Christian woman at the time. While his claims of being an orphan were true, most everything else was doubtful at best, Even his outlandish appearance, easily the most believable thing about his tale, was disproven through old photos. His friends and family gritted their teeth and admitted that, yes, Mike makes up stories for attention and it's just best to tune him out. Easier said than done when Warren Key's stand-up albums were doing monster business, he was touring cross-country and was being lauded as an expert in all things satanic. He even made an appearance on that TV special Geraldo Rivera inflicted on all of us. Warnkey's ramblings were not confined to his concert venues. They fed directly into the mythology of the satanic panic. According to Canfield, it was Warnkey who popularized the idea of Satanists hiding out among normals, hunting for weak points. This satanic underground is the most pervasive part of the hysteria and still persists in some circles despite a thorough debunking by the FBI. In fact, it has morphed, evolved, donned a new face so it can survive in QAnon and stranger danger hysteria. In 1992, an expose by the Christian countercultural magazine Cornerstone was released, rising like the Reapers to settle Warnke's massive bill. In addition to exposing his satanic past as self-mythology, Cornerstone sought to break Warnke's angelic facade. His abusive marriages, his affairs, his shady financial dealings, and the fact that his own autobiography was an idea stolen from a secret collaborator were all dragged into the open. At the time, Canfield was working at Cornerstone as a research assistant. His main duty was keeping track of the friends and family who could either corroborate or shatter Warnke's many, many, many lies. It was this stint at Cornerstone that broke his illusions about Warnke. Called by many a pillar of progressive Christianity, the magazine took on racism in the church, traditions that contradicted Christ's teachings, and exposed many frauds besides Warnke. As you can imagine, this earned them a bit of a reputation in conservative circles. After the expose, Warnke lost almost everything. Record deals were pulled, tours were canceled, and his popularity shriveled, partly due to the fact that this was 1992 and America was starting to sober up, partly because his claims that the cornerstone authors were Satanists out to get him just didn't play with most people. Warnke still tours, and Warnke still lies, and there aren't enough articles in the world to undo the damage he caused by doing so. Speaking of damage we can never undo, let's move on to our final article. The Only Word in the World is Mine, Remembering Michelle Remembers by Alexandra Heller-Nicholas gives readers a crash course on the eponymous book that is, according to many, the epicenter of the entire panic. Co-authored by Michelle Smith and her therapist, Dr. Lawrence Padzer, it is a harrowing and sickening tale of an innocent girl victimized by her own mother. Published in the 1970s, it takes place during her childhood in the 50s, the events of which she allegedly repressed and had recovered by Dr. Padzer. After Michelle's father, portrayed here as a two-dimensional drunk, abandons his family, her mother, Jessica, seeks comfort in a satanic cult for some reason. Naturally. As one does. Eventually, she gives Michelle over to them, abandoning her there. The cult begins using Michelle in their diabolical rituals. This is where the book starts to grow truly absurd. Michelle is sexually abused by adult humans and creepy animals alike, has her body rubbed with human fetuses, is forced to defecate on a Bible, watches babies be crucified, and has devil horns surgically grafted onto her head. She doesn't have those now.
2: Yeah, and they left no scarring whatsoever. That's Mm -mm. good to know. Nope. They were good surgeon Satanists.
0: Apparently they just fell off like a vestigial tail after birth. Huh. I think. That's my only assumption. Just when it seems like this ordeal will never end, Michelle is rescued by interference from the ultimate motherly savior. The Virgin Mary appears before her in a beautific vision and through vague miraculous powers... She sends her son, not her, that's important, her son, Jesus, frees Michelle from the cult's abuse. She returns home to peace and safety with her mother, who sold her in the first place. Yay! (laughs) Jessica Smith died when Michelle was 14, and Michelle ended up in a Catholic boarding school. After completing her education, she began receiving care from Dr. Padzer at a mental health facility. After suffering a miscarriage, uh, Smith began decompensating, and with Padzer's guidance, began to recall her unwilling involvement in satanic rites. First and most troublingly was the Feast of the Beast, a Warnke-esque festival of screams and cannibalism that occurs every 27 years. The book wants us to remember this number because, according to Padzer's math, that means that the next one would occur in 1982 and drown all of Christendom in blood. The book's monster success brought Smith and Padzer into the spotlight, and they became talk show darlings. During this press tour, they both divorced their spouses to instead marry each other. At what point they went from patient caregiver to lovers is distressingly unclear. Major news outlets presented the story in the modern era well understood as lies or distortions uncritically, as pure fact. Part of the reason the public bought this was the session tapes, in which Michelle audibly breaks down while allegedly recalling these horrific events. But Padzer is the real profiteer here. The main author of this book, he paints himself as a strong, white, Christian man, the moral authority standing firm against the forces of darkness, and please understand the emphasis on dark. In his own words, Padzer describes Satanism as reminding him of africa by which he means dirty, backwards, unevolved, godforsaken, and disease-ridden. Never mind the fact that 90% of Pan-African social ills can be directly traced back to the crimes of Christian-tinged colonization. Padzer paints the devil as black and has no qualms admitting it. Beyond the mind-nubbing racism and voyeuristic views of child sexual abuse, Michelle Remembers takes a few smug swings at the entire concept of women. Despite the bulk of the cultists being described as men, the book's ire focuses on the women of the cult as the real monsters. In a common refrain, the book seems to feel that, well, men shouldn't be applauded for molesting children. We shouldn't be surprised when they do. Women, on the other hand, are meant to be pure and motherly. Michelle's mother, Jessica, is painted as the ultimate evil for her failure to protect her. But she still has to raise the kid at the end. Not even a deal with the devil gets you out of unwanted parenthood. Despite the monstrous success of Michelle Remembers, the story never made it to the silver screen, a fact that many anti-satanic panic voices are immensely grateful for. The book's initial name-dropping of the Church of Satan as the people behind the cult, and Anton LaVey's far-from-idle threats of legal action, were likely the primary factor in that. However, its influence is still far-reaching. Legendary literary publisher Thomas B. Congdon penned a foreword for the UK edition of the book, putting his full faith in Michelle's story. As mentioned above, he was far from the only authority figure to lend credence to this demented tale. Padzer, too, uses his education and authority, assuring the reader that they should believe the tale simply because he believes it. And the harm of the book goes beyond reinforcing shitty ideas about people of color and women. Padzer's memory recovery techniques were never based in sound science. These days, they are more or less completely debunked. But before that, he introduced the greater public to this insidious idea, the idea that it doesn't matter that you think you have never been victimized. You wouldn't know it if you had been. Monkey see, monkey do. Down on their luck, therapists or bored attention seekers saw Padzers rise to stardom and scrabble to follow. Dangerous hypnosis techniques and the power of suggestion and the inherent trust we placed in our therapists all combined into a brief but troubling fad of recovered memories, Recovered memories that more thorough checking revealed were actually altered memories of ordinary events or complete and utter lies. Like the West Memphis Three, innocent people were arrested for crimes that never even happened. And to this day, we have mad gunmen bursting into pizza parlors trying to save a little girl who doesn't exist. And on that somber note, we move into our final equally somber question. Frauds are something we've talked about a lot on this show, but this is one of the few times where those frauds have caused ongoing, measurable harm. I ask, is there such a thing as a harmless fraud? And if a fraud is discovered, what are we supposed to do about it?
2: I mean, it really comes down to what the ramifications were. You know, I mean, I think if, if you per perpetuate a fraud that leads to someone going to prison or losing their their business or their their livelihood or god forbid their life you need to be punished like i i don't think know if there is any laws on the books right now that would make that happen uh but that's just a personal belief of mine Um, but i think that that we talked about this with paranormal stuff frauds exist and how do we deal with that and i think probably the way we deal with it is I know we've, we've mentioned this before on the show is ignore them, is that what they want more than anything is your ear. Mm-hmm. They they want as many people listening to them as possible because it's a it's a self-fulfilling cycle. The more people who listen to them, the greater their credibility because people are listening to them. Mm-hmm. And, be, and then more people start listening to them, and their credibility grows. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy by which just by saying some some lies – they can continue to gather a following if those lies are repeated, because the more it's repeated in the culture, the more "quote unquote" true it becomes for those people. Um, and I, I think the way that you know, it's 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 like cancer. The way you kill it is you deprive it. You know, we we need to find a way to shut these people up. And I think part of what we're seeing in the modern day with QAnon is it's insanely difficult to do that when there are so many outlets that let literally anyone in the world broadcast their platform to the world i mean even for example let's look at the show you know we are uh three midwestern assholes sitting in a basement and yes the, quite a bit of time and energy and money was invested in this equipment and us putting together the out this show but at the same time we have a platform that is able to reach countries that 50 years that even like 20 years ago were not part of of the cultural media of the world we we can our voice can travel f- much further than uh, Geraldo Rivera's special ever could, and I think that that we're seeing an amplification of this effect happening now because again anyone can talk to anyone now, and that's a great thing. It's an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's also an insanely dangerous thing, and I think that we have to understand and learn to uh, in a, in a in a responsible in a mature way deal with that fact uh and and i i think a big part of it is just we need to as a people get a lot better at when somebody says something not immediately take it at face value look into it or or at least put some thought into it and figure out if it actually holds water and if it doesn't tell them to go fuck themselves like we we need to we <laughs> I, I hate to we need to get a little more rude and i i in in different ways than we're currently very rude uh Uh, You know, I think that there is a lot of reason a lot of frauds get away with it is because people don't want to call them out. You have the the people you have a lot of people who want to be very polite. And I'm in that crowd Mm -hmm. like everyone we talk to on our show. Trust me, I have not I'm not a a full stock believer in everything. Any of many of our interview guests have said, but at the same time, I I respect them. I respect their opinions. I want to talk Mm -hmm. to them about it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to run off a full believer in every single thing that we read or, or p- thing that someone we talk to says. Uh, for example, I am still very dubious about the existence of reptilian aliens. Uh, I'm fairly sure the UFO phenomenon is real. I don't know if it's aliens. Uh, but you know, that, that's where I guess my line of incredulity is. I think we just need to get a little more okay with telling people that mm, I don't believe you, and uh, if telling them that means just not listening to them, that's probably the ideal way. Uh, there's a long winded answer to come back to. Don't listen to them.
1: No, I, I think you made a lot of good points though. I'm like I, I'm I'm not sure I can uh, I, I can articulate any 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 more of what you said because I wholeheartedly agree with you, what you said. But one thing that I, I keep thinking about, because you know, I read this question ahead of time, and something that we've talked about on the show is uh, if frauds are like if, if you go to a medium, for example, and it turns out later that that medium is a fraud, but what you took out from it was positive, then what was the harm? And I think there therein lies the difference that we need to look at. What, because what is the long term harm? What is the harm? Because like I, I don't want to say, like I don't want people to think I'm a hypocrite when I say this, but it, like, for somebody like this, there are, I mean, there is such a thing as a, as a bad, you know, as, as like a more, like a, a, a worse fraud than others, you know, like a medium that, that is being fraudulent to us, that says that they, they, they spoke to my grandma and you know is delivering me a message and I take from that message something positive that helps me get over the emotion that I had, you know, about her passing, whatever. Um, And then it turns out that, that, that person is fraudulent. I still think that there's a, there's a way, like there's a way for me to say, well, maybe she was, but that doesn't mean that the message she was sending wasn't sent from my grandma. It was just sent to me through her. Right. Yeah. But not in the same, not in the same fashion of, of actual medium shit. Fine but this is different because this person was actively fraudulent and trying to in effectively in the message that he was sending was actively harming other people. Yeah. Ruining lives and making a profit off of it.
0: W- Warren key and Padzer are, are, the reason there are people who went to jail for shit that didn't happen. Yeah. Like,
1: like lives were ruined forever. and, and and that's that's the that's the bad thing. That's what you have to look out for when it comes to when it comes to frauds and it's like how do you how do you deal with all that? And this comes back to what I was saying earlier. Ultimately, you have to do your own research. You have to look into all of this. You cannot take it at you cannot take everything at face value and we shouldn't especially in today's day and age. Fuck, I hope everybody that listens to this show Listens to other things and not just our opinions,
0: I've said things that I found out three days later were just wrong,
1: yeah, because we're we're not perfect. We're humans. we We do a shitload of research and work for this show to make sure that what we say is accurate to what we're what we're talking about. But also remember the shit that we talk about here is fucking crazy. yeah, you know, so I hope that everybody that listens to this show does additional research. and I hope that if they find something that we were wrong that they tell us.
0: Please correct me. You
1: know, but that's ultimately, that's what it that's what it has to that. It's what it has to be with everything. Like, if you especially if you th- if you think something that somebody said is convincing, do more research,
2: uh, especially you know? if what they're saying feeds into beliefs you already had about the world.
1: Right. Exactly. Like, like, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll talk about somebody that all, all four of us, Chris, the most is, is mutual friends with. Like, we we read Tenny's book. We've talked to Tenny, we interviewed him, and everything and, and several of the things that he said, I've done deep dives on myself just to to back it up. You know, to listen to what to to based on what he said. And we've compared what he said to other things that we've read. And you know, just just as an example. And I and I respect the fuck out of him. You know? So I I I even like even people that I mad respect. I'm wearing a a, a shirt for the Paranormal Museum for the Newkirk's, and I talk about them all the time. And I disagree with Greg on a lot, you know. And I, but you can still. I mean,
2: I have a weird hero worship relationship with John Keel, and I'm fairly confident ninety percent of what he said is probably off base.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's you've got to you've got to be you can you can respect somebody and you can have. Uh, opinions about somebody and 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 still disagree with them, and that's fine. But you you have to you have to actively look into it all. You have to do your research. That's that's my point, and that's what I'm sticking to. And more than Wikipedia pages. What about you, Chris?
3: Uh, I mean, you guys pretty much put it perfectly. But uh, my whole thing would be accountability. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there such a thing as harmless fraud? Yes. uh, To to what Rory was saying, when you speak to a media or someone that claims they're a psychic, that message that you get and what you take from it, that's whether they're being truthful or not, that's just what you receive. That's the the message you receive. It it impacts you the way it needs to be, which, you know, as we know, a lot of uh, fraudulent psychics and mediums, they do their research. They they cold call you. They do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but still you end up with some kind of experience or something out of it. But uh, my whole, bit, it, it's more of accountability. Like, yeah, like if it's something where it's not destroying lives, sure, whatever, ignore it. Or like you guys are doing, spread the information. Like if you're able to say like, Hey listeners, you know, this is just our opinion, but you know, we, we've, we've discovered this so-and-so is a fraud up to you whether or not you still want to listen to it or not, blah, 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 blah. take it as it is. Um, but for someone to be a genuine piece of shit and just profit off of something so horrible and to get away with that for the longest time and, to, and for nothing to happen to it, that's, I think there needs to be new laws put in place. There needs to be all kinds of things. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You uh, guys put, like I said, you, you all put it
0: perfectly, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that. The, the only type of law, and Roy would na- know way more about this than I would, that they could possibly expand is like it's some sort of caveat to perjury of it's like if you told yeah. a lie that leads to somebody getting arrested, can that retroactively be labeled perjury because you did technically lie to the court? Like, well, if the mm-hmm.
1: prosecutor wants to actually do like their job um depending on the outcome of the lie is how, is what they can what they can go after the 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 fraudster with right so if i commit if due to my lies and my fraud murders happened i could be then held liable for those murders
2: interesting i i wonder how often it happens
1: though next to never because it'd be very difficult to prove exactly and that's why it never happens is it's very difficult to prove with the way that our judi- our judicial system works because the burden of proof is on uh the prosecutor and you and how do you get proof of something when a lot of it's based off of opinion
0: and you know, I can also imagine it starts to bump into murky waters of free speech. Like I know free speech obviously has limits. Like you know,
1: there's free spe- there's limits to free speech written in our constitution that everybody literally forgets about all the time. Yes, but
0: but still, it is it is still a concept. And I imagine if you are not using actual violence inciting speech directly, there might be a little like, well, he didn't directly tell them to X, Y, Z. There,
1: there is a um, like an argument to be made in the in. The uh, in the first amendment because the intention behind the rule was you have freedom of speech so long as they don't um incite uh violence right they were called fighting words that was what that was what they like how they used it how they termed it if what you said would bring a fight you are not covered under free speech
2: huh oh there's some uh Statements I wish I could take back from well, my and, past,
1: but nobody actually holds to that. Yeah, but that was that like, like ninety percent of the Constitution, the the spirit of the rule was forgotten.
2: Uh, before we move into the about the author, I did have one thing to add. Um, there is one har- what one fraud that happens in communities that we're associated with that um, seems harmless but is not. Yes, and that is uh, D and D players who cheat their dice rolls, and I think we need to tar and feather them and sacrifice them to the devil.
1: Except for the DM, if you're the DM, you're allowed to fudge your roll,
0: yeah, because you're God, as we covered. Yeah, Um, my that actually interestingly leads me into my only point that I wanted to make about frauds is that, and this is what I enjoyed so much about reading the Warnkey essay specifically is there is so much value. In cleaning your own house in Mm. terms of getting frauds out like this is a phenomenon that I see in the Catholic Church and in many other institutional institutions or communities that feel like they are under intense scrutiny of when one of their own deviates and behaves inappropriately, the instinct is to protect them and lie for them because you don't want your already shaky reputation to be tarnished. But my god, your reputation improves so much if you establish yourself as a community where it's like if you fuck up and you're an asshole, they won't have to come for you because we're throwing you out. Like
2: that's good. I mean, that's a strong community polices its own.
0: Absolutely. Like that's the kink community by and large polices its own for that exact reason. Of it's like we don't want to get the cops involved. Just if <laughs> like if there's if there's a guy who's an asshole literally basically like slap a fucking wanted poster up in all of the clubs and just be like don't talk to him.
2: <laughs> oh, I love that image of wanted posters in a kink club. <laughs> they have it hanging <laughs> from, they have it hanging from the X-cross.
0: <laughs> but uh but yeah, that's uh that was my only real point about frauds is that communities gain more benefit from policing their own than protecting their own when someone has legitimately fucked up and you just kind of like the cornerstone team you kind of need to just have the courage to be the first one who goes like i don't care how much money this guy is making us he's he's a piece of shit like Mm -hmm. integrity integrity
2: integrity (laughs) yeah all um, right. Are we a bit ready for the About the Editors? Yeah, we absolutely please. are. All right. So these are a little shorter. Um, Thank God. Yeah. So uh, Kira La Genesee, I believe that's how you say her name, uh, was born in 1972. Uh, she is a Canadian film writer, programmer, and educator. She was the programmer for the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema and the Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas. And she also co-founded the Montreal micro-cinema Blue Shine, as well as the Cinemuerte Horror Film Festival in Vancouver, Canada. She is the owner and editor-in-chief of the publisher Spectacular Optical, which is the publisher of this book. Uh, she was the founder of the Misotonic Institute of Horror Studies, an international program offering undergraduate-level history, theory, and production-based classes in the horror genre. And she's the author of House of Psychotic Women, an autobiographical topography of female neuroses in horror and exploitation films, which I understand is considered a landmark text in film studies.
0: I must possess it.
2: Uh, She also filmed A Violent Professional, the films of Lusanio Rossi, and she contributed writings to several other anthology texts like this one. Uh, She is currently co-authoring a book titled Unhealthy and Aberrant, Depictions of Horror Fandom in Film and Television. She has appeared as a horror expert in a number of documentaries, including Eli Roth's History of Horror, and she produced several documentaries, such as Eurocrime, the Italian cop and gangster films that ruled the 1970s. She also wrote, directed, and produced a documentary on horror folklore called Woodlands, Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it does. Uh, The co-editor, Paul Karup, since 1999, he has been a key researcher, creator, and contributor to Canuxploitation.com, a Canadian movie history site working to uncover lost gems of Canadian cinema. Uh, He is a frequent contributor to Canadian film journals and magazines. He's appeared as himself in a number of documentaries and video shorts, including Nightmare in Canada, Canadian Horror on Film. And he's worked as the editor on several other books, including Spectacular Optical's Yuletide Terror, Christmas Horror in Film and Television. And he is the co-founder and co-head programmer for a Toronto-based horror lecture series called The Black Museum. And that, that's what I dug up on those guys.
1: Um, Very cool. Yeah. And, and that, I think, maybe puts us to rest here. Are we... Well, we got the last, the last little bit that we always got to go through here. All right, housekeeping. We call it housekeeping. 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 And with that, if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever social media or rather streaming platform that you're listening to us on. And if it's Spotify... Please leave us a review, and and Apple. Please leave us a review, five stars preferred. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can. The podcast has its own at Noctivagan on Twitter, and I am at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror.
0: I'm at Midwest Undead.
1: And we also have a plethora of other social medias, Reddit, Tumblr, and uh, Instagram, all under the name Noctivagan Podcast, that you can find us all on. But Chris. Where can our listeners find you on them social medias?
3: So uh, Facebook, you find me on uh, Horribly Nerdy Podcast, um, Patreon.com slash Horribly Nerdy, and Twitter, just Google the Horribly Nerdy Podcast. that you pop-up.
1: There, there you right. go. And please do go and check out Chris's show as well. I promise it's worth the listen, at least in my, my opinion. Support
0: um, our friend.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: But otherwise, anybody have any last words on the Satanic Panic? I do. It's no. some
2: bullshit. That's my opinion.
0: <laughs> uh, rest in peace, Gary Lowers. Just one more time. Like yeah. Gary Lauer.
3: <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. I just, uh, if, if your listeners are interested, like if they're big horror fans, I just have a handful of like Satanic cult and Satanic horror movies they could watch if they are interested. Let's go. All right, so uh, 1968's "The Devil Rides Out," starring Christopher Lee, is pretty good. I've seen that; uh, it's It's awesome,
0: great movie. Yes, I have never seen this. Oh my! It's so good.
2: So good. It is ridiculous. It is, and
0: you should. The fact
1: that I am saying that should say a lot because I do not like old horror most of the time. No,
3: you don't. No, it is.
2: It is a genuine gem of 19. It uh, is so good for sure. Uh, 1977's
3: "The Sentinel." uh, Featuring Christopher Walken and Jeff Goldblum. Uh, That one is really creepy. Uh, That's one of the first movies I saw in recent history that scared the crap out of me. Uh, If you've ever seen Heavenly Creatures, this movie will seem familiar. It's called Don't Deliver Us from Evil from 1971. It's based on the same New Zealand killing case. Uh, And then there's one movie that the book mentioned, Evil Sleep. Mm Mm-hmm watch it once don't ever watch it twice because yeah. it sucks the second time
2: <laughs> i've been trying to find it on uh for free on a streaming service i might just have to cave and buy an old dvd or something God,
3: yeah prime yeah, might uh, have I it for rent. the screen factory release and now i'm kind of sad I have it.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then finally the john carpenter classic prince of darkness
2: of oh course. yeah yes yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, This was a lot of fun for us. I hope you had fun as well.
3: Oh, I had a blast. This has been absolutely fun. This made my night after a horrible day. So perfect.
4: Oh,
1: I am glad to hear that. And you know what? Feel free to um, come back anytime because you were a blast. You You were a blast just to chat with. So we will definitely be reaching out again, I'm sure. Um, But if nothing else, Jay, why don't you uh, lead us on out of here?
0: Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads.
2: Get lost immediately. No. Don't take a map. Don't take water. Get lost.
1: We want them to come back to listen again.
2: I'm sure they'll have their iPhone. They can listen while they walk endlessly.
1: You know what? That's fair. Get lost.
2: All right. Good night.
0: When I said that He-Man was filled with accidental homoeroticism, that was me giving the creators the benefit of the doubt. I don't know how intentional that was. My answer is, I hope it's very.